0: see the news report now. They were a quiet family, kept pretty much to themselves. No one would have ever suspected them of foul play. I've never seen that. I've never seen anybody drive their garbage down to the street and bang the hell out of it with a stick on. I've never seen that. We go over and get a look at those garbage cans. Well,
1: call me overly cautious, but don't you think that's going to be a bit suspicious? The three of us going through the
0: garbage at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of a rainstorm? Affirmative. That garbage is going nowhere.
2: I say we wait on first light. Scope me. I'm out of here. Rain away. Bummer. Well,
0: Hey, what was that you were saying the other day about uh,
1: half cock theories, I think, was it Welcome to episode 25 of the Film89 Podcast, as usual. My name's Sky and I'm the editor of film89.co.uk. And tonight with me to my left is Steve Namos. Hello everybody. And for tonight's episode, our guest co-host is gonna be it's a member of the Wrong Real community and someone that we're really excited to be making his Film89 co-host in debut. He's the founder and head writer of the brilliant film site, ThePinkSmoke.com, which also now has its own podcast. And he's certainly no stranger to the world of film podcasts, having been a co-host on numerous episodes of Wrong Reel, Just the Discs, Pure Cinema Podcast, Zebras in America, Flixwise, and many, many more. He is a cinephile of the absolute highest standards, and it gives us great pleasure to welcome Mr. John Cribbs. John, welcome to Film 89.
2: Hey guys, thanks for having me.
1: Tonight, we're going to be talking about um, a film, uh, and in particular, a filmmaker that's very close to your heart, Mr. Joe Dante. But before we come up to that, just um, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with you, just tell, us, tell them about yourself, about The Pink Smoke, and about um, how we all sort of uh, well, kind of found each other through Wrong Real, I guess.
2: Absolutely. I uh, refer to myself as an incurable film lover, which I think uh, many in the Wrong Real community probably would self-describe themselves. I've tried to pull away from it, but I just, I keep coming back. You know, I just, I can't see enough films. I can't uh, absorb enough films. I can't write about enough films. I can't hear other people talk about films enough, you know? So I, I, I love that we've all come together on this uh, great podcast on James's podcast. I love hearing everyone's opinions on some fantastic subjects. I love how varied the subjects are, how many different filmmakers and uh, different uh, genres, different, uh, series of films uh, come into play some you know academics some nostalgic that's definitely what i'm all about so it's been a wonderful experience just getting to know you guys uh through your your podcast through your, your site which i want to say congratulations on that i've really enjoyed film 89 very much In terms of the pink smoke i think it's been going out for is it nearly well 15 years Oh, it's getting there. It's about thirteen or so at this point. I think feels like forever ago, but uh, yeah, it's a site that uh, Chris Funderburg and I founded together after kind of getting involved in social media back in the MySpace days. I think it was when this was when we uh, uh, met people like Marcus Penn, uh, who just shared a you know love of film, and uh, we wanted to start getting film writing out there. And uh, uh, that was kind of the idea behind it was just as a place to kind of create a uh, platform for our. Uh, appreciation of uh, things that we love. In the recent years, it just it's expanded and had more people get involved. And uh, uh, like you said, we just kind of started a podcast formally on the site. So it's been really terrific. And um, coming up, we've got Mike Lee Month we're going to be doing in April. So it's going to be a bunch of articles about Mike Lee and uh, his films. Of course, his new film, Peter, Peter Liu, is coming out next month. It's just great to be able to have an opportunity to go back, watch all these films that we love and dedicate lots of words to the reasons. So we love them and kind of rediscover them in that way. So it's uh it's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, and one of the things, you know, I love about about your website is I look at the, the sort of depth and the size of some of your articles, they, like the recent Charles Bronson one, was it the the mechanic? The the amount of, of like sort of depth that you go into in in, in these articles is, is staggering, and, and I you know you know they they never drag on unnecessarily, an, an and at the end you you feel like you've had you know really good insight into a film, you know often from like a personal perspective as well, which is like something we we, we often try to aim at with Film 89. I, I and was, I was thinking back as to when I actually um, heard you and Chris on Wrong Reel I actually. Think it was the um, the Joe Dante episode you did a few years
2: back, maybe 2016. Sounds right, that was the first one that I did.
1: That was the first wrong way really you did. Wow, was a great subject to start!
2: Yeah. yeah, 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 they drew me with that one. Yeah, <laughs> obviously,
1: tonight the film we're going to be delving into is Joe Dante's 1989 comedy, The Burbs, which is a film that I know you're extremely fond of, and it is you know. Not to let the cat out of the bag too early, but anyone that's familiar with the film 89 will know that Steve and I absolutely love the film and it is one of our all-time favourites. But how did you first come into Joe Dante and and when did you first uh, become aware of the Burbs?
2: You know, I saw Turner and Hooch in the theatre. I saw Big in the theatre. I saw Joe versus the Volcano in the theatre. I did not see the Burbs in the theatre when it came out. It seems like a travesty. I don't know how that happened. So I definitely caught up with it on video. Because I've never seen it theatrically, which is definitely a bucket list sort of thing that I have to, you know, get sorted out at some point. But I definitely saw it on video. I remember the first time I saw it, I didn't see the end for some reason. The same thing happened to me with Predator. I should bring up another film 89 favorite, I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Around that same time, I, I, for some reason, it got cut off and I had to wait like six months before seeing the ending. So there was this kind of – I got a while to kind of appreciate the film and really anticipate like what what it ends up being with the Burbs especially because there's this mystery of who these people are and does does it turn out that they're ghouls and monsters or not. Um, So that's sort of my memory of seeing it for the first time was just this anticipation of when I'm going to find out if the Klopeks are bad guys or not or if everyone on the street is just crazy. But Dante, I uh, definitely – I loved Inner Space. I think that was probably the first movie I saw and of course – uh, gremlins and when it all came together th- these were films being done by the same guy i realized i was a huge fan i mean gigantic fan because all these movies are fantastic and he is by far one of my favorite filmmakers
1: steve um i know you're a huge joe dante fan and you know when did you first become aware of him as a filmmaker well i'd seen all uh, quite a few of his films
0: i'd seen the howling i'd seen um, Gremlins. I. Where I um, used to live, there was um, one cinema with two screens. And one summer, Gremlins 2 was there for months. And I saw it eight yeah. times in the cinema. Wow. Because every week I'd go and think, oh, well, I'd have to go watch something. Mm-hmm. So I watched Gremlins 2 again. And, you know, in a space I saw all those um, exp- explorers. But I think the film, the, the moment I realised who this person was, was watching an episode of The Twilight Zone, The Shadow Man, which was a fabulous little episode, really, really scary at the time. And when I saw the name Joe Dante, I was thinking, I know that person. And I think that's the moment when it all clicked together.
1: Yeah, I think I kind of got into Joe Dante chronologically. I think certainly the first film of his I was aware of on a big scale was Gremlins. And, you know, I think in 1984, I was probably you know, approaching eight years old um, at the time. Uh, and, you know, I was sort of there for that. You know, when when that film dropped, it was absolutely massive. That, that, that was an amazing year for films, um, you know. Uh, being a, a child that grew up in the 80s you had Ghostbusters, The Terminator you know, it was just a fantastic year and Gremlins was one of those films that definitely left its mark on me I didn't see it in the cinema it was one of those films I saw on VHS you know, that theatrical one sheet the one with, you know, Billy holding the box you would just see the little yeah. paws inside and then later on you had um, the one with the actual full-on Gremlin you know, coming out with a box it, it just it was a film that immediately sort of caught my attention. But I do remember the first time I ever saw the post of the one with the Gremlin on, <clears throat> I, I you know, I felt mistakenly that it may be one of those um sort of video nasty type films. Now, John, I don't know if you're aware, but throughout the, the sort of early to mid 80s there was this phenomenon in britain of, of the video nasties and the fact that um, certain members of the, the social political correctness hierarchy in particular mary whitehouse who was in charge of the um, british border film classification at the time she sort of came down really hard on what she saw as these these violent um, action films and horror films which are sort of polluting the minds of young children so when i saw that poster for gremlins i thought oh is this going to be a video nasty but then you know to my surprise my parents were like oh yeah you, know, you can watch it it's fine It's a PG." It wasn't though. No, it was actually a fifteen. Well, yes, yeah, sorry, no, it was a fifteen. You had to be in the UK. Fifteen years to watch yeah, it. Yeah, you did. You did. But again, you know, I think because my parents, I think, had already seen it, they were happy for me to watch it. But that was certainly the first Joe Dante film I'd seen. But I don't, even, I don't think at that point I was actually familiar with him as a filmmaker. Um, but certainly by the time then, I, you know, I came out to watching the Burbs then in 1989, or it may well have been even early 1990 by the time it came to VHS in the UK. Because I, again, I, you know, I didn't go and see that in the cinema. It was at that point then that I, you know. I was familiar with Joe Dante. I'd seen a few of his films, like *The Howling*, *In the Space Explorers*, films that you know I was extremely fond of. You know, from the get-go, *The Burbs* was a film that I just think I sort of like fell head over heels in love with it.
0: So, am I the only one who's actually seen it in the cinema? I think you may be. Yeah, and you I, may. Well I be. remember um, I, I, there was a film. I can't remember which one. I think it may have been *The Naked Gun*. We were going to see that, um, myself and a gang of us. We went down to Cardiff to see it, and I remember the poster, Tom Hanks standing there in the street with his spatula in one hand, yeah. his dressing gown, and I saw the name Joe Dante, and we, I think I knew it, it was coming soon anyway because probably Premier Magazine or uh, uh, Screen International, which we used to read at the time. I was so engrossed with the poster that I, everybody you know, pissed off and went into the film, and I couldn't—I didn't see him until the end then.
2: Yeah. I'm so jealous, Steve. I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, yeah, but
1: John, I think... It's safe Steve is considerably older than us.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't say considerably.
1: <laughs> I, I think John, you, you and, and Chris Funderberg and I, I think we're roughly the same age. But you know, add a couple of uh, you know, digits onto that, and Steve is a little—he's <laughs> a little bit more seasoned, I think. I can't argue with that i'm trying to think that the first joe dante film i actually saw in the cinema would have been gremlins 2 but um i think we'll, you know, we'll sort of have a look at a bit of a more broad discussion of his of his filmography later on when we do our our favorite three um segment which you know i forgot to say in the intro this episode is going to be funnily enough our favorite three joe dante films going back to the burbs john what do you know of the sort of um conception of this film and sort of how it came to be
2: Okay, so uh, I should mention first the poster we were just talking about I have hanging right next to me on the wall right now as we're talking. I have it uh, signed by by Dante and by Dick Miller. Oh, wow. So it's obviously one of my cherished possessions, you know, sitting there next to me. The genesis of the movie was that Dana Olsen, who was an actor who hadn't done much writing, uh, came up with this idea of doing sort of a comedy goof on rear window called Bay Window. So it was going to be set in a neighborhood, the character who sees that his neighbors are up to something. And like Rear Window, was going to be a mystery as to uh, if they were actually killing people or what was going on. But of course, it was supposed to be lighthearted and a a comedy. He had originally written it for Bill Murray, which was, you know, sort of the thing at the time everyone was trying to do vehicles for Bill Murray. But then when Dante got involved, uh, it evolved into uh, a Joe Dante movie. And I think this is just a time where He was able to take a project that had been developed as a completely different idea and turn it into, you know, give it the Joe Dante magic and bring Tom Hanks on board, which at the time, you know, was he was just about to explode with big coming out in the theater and everything. He was about to become a huge star, but Dante peopled it with his uh, usual staple of actors, his fantastic uh, uh, crop of actors that he had and created this really amazing experience where Everybody in this film is just phenomenal. Like, I can't think of anybody who is pulling up slack, who is not doing their best. Everyone in this movie is so good. And it just feels like one of those things that just had to happen, that just, you know, universally had to kind of come together and make it happen. And of course, it's a universal movie. But what I mean is the fates, you know, were smiling on this particular project to find Joe Dante because it was so perfect for his mentality at the time that you get this story that it's about people who are living regular lives but they need to have a horror movie happening it's like they're creating their own horror film in this movie uh that's sort of the thing that i love about it the kind of joe dante theme of people who are seeing monsters people who are living within a b movie even though they're just these regular people hanging out in the cul-de-sac they have to be part of this you know horror story this genre story so going up right to the very end where we're we're Convinced for a while that the Klopeks are completely, you know, uh, harmless. That they are, you know, just a bunch of weirdos. I often have like the feeling living in a neighborhood, you know, that people are judging me the same way. That like if my lawn isn't cut exactly on time, or if I put up a weird <laughs> decoration or the wrong ornament in front of my house. People are going to assume I'm a serial murderer, you know, like it's, it's a lot of scrutiny when you're living within that kind of close knit society. So what I really love about the burbs is that right up to the end, you're thinking that maybe it is just these people kind of coming up with these scenarios and casting these roles on the Klopex that might not even be true. And the fact that anyone trying to do a movie like, like the burbs would never have uh, dived that deeply into the theme it had to be joe dante that i think is what really gives the bird its layers on top of being just a fun exciting well-made film it's just it makes you think about how people live their lives and it's just wonderful film
0: it's um it's almost as if um, the the conformity in which they live in this small world this small bubble of this cul-de-sac they live there they might go to work they might go on the occasional holiday but otherwise everything is contained and I know that um, you, you mentioned um, the rear window then, uh, Hitchcock's rear window, but the one film Joe Dante has mentioned a few times in comparing it is another <coughs> Hitchcock film, Lifeboat. And it must have been a real, quite a struggle really, to, to contain it and not expand beyond that street. You know, same as uh, you know, in rear window and Lifeboat, they are very, very much contained. Uh, the burbs is contained within that
1: one Mayfield place. It is, yeah. You know, at no point do we actually go beyond, uh, you know, the, the, the universal backlot on which it was filmed. It's, it, it's all a, a very sort of um, intimate and, 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 yeah, insular, self-contained little film, which effectively, for the most part, you could argue on paper, it's a film about nothing, and it's about just the mundanity of suburban life.
0: Yeah. And yet, um, ironically, the first shot it is, shows the oh, yeah, school. absolutely. <laughs> we do, yeah,
1: it, yeah. You could argue that you know, it, it, it's, it, it's like. You, know, you you have you know films with which have got incredible pullback shots. That's got to be one of the greatest zoom in shots I think mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Oh, it's amazing! It is, and I think it was maybe the I think the first time that the Universal logo was actually buck ended the film, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I think
0: it is the only time you yeah, it. yeah.
1: Because obviously you know, mm-hmm. you know skipping right to the last few frames of the film, we actually we actually zoom back out and have a reverse of that shot at the beginning. Um, I think it um, it's kind of almost represents the. You know, the smallness of
0: these lives and it the smallness does. Yeah, of the yeah, yeah. story, which consumes them completely, but it's just one little speck in, I think, isn't it the um that is, um, you know, that's where the, the
1: camera zooms into? Uh, is that right, John?
2: Uh, yeah, when they go down into the map, it looks like Middle America, like it's right. Idaho or Illinois, something like Got that. You. But I, I just prefer to think of this as Joe Dante land, you yeah, know, the same yeah. way that Kingston, Kingston Falls or Winslow Corners or Erie, Indiana. You know, or Joe Dante Land, just a fictional place in the middle of America somewhere. Uh,
0: the nerd to me has got to point out. I think somebody said that the um, driving license, not the license, the license registration number on the some of the um, cars and the, um, the dump truck yeah. is actually Chicago. Right. But I think that it zooms into Des Moines, which is. Um,
2: I feel like it's like Springfield on The Simpsons. It is. Know? It, it is. Yes. It is. Yeah. It's like
0: that um, tri-state area that everybody almost seems to mention in America. I don't don't know if it exists, a a tri-state area, but it seems to be everywhere.
1: Yeah, I just think it's sort of like, it's it's fictional, suburban, sort of um, romanticized, you know, middle America. But obviously, as we'll come to later, with a bit of a dark, sort of sinister underbelly.
2: Yeah, but diving into the world, straight into Mayfield Place, is so perfect because it becomes the world. Yeah. You know? That, that is just the stage that is set, and everyone is going to be around there. Dante had said a lot of times, you know, he was really tempted to take the action out of the neighborhood. I'm so glad he didn't, because that becomes everything that the characters know, becomes everything that we know, every experience we're going to have throughout this movie is within this neighborhood. It is effectively the entire world.
1: And you, that, and that then sort of links back into the comparisons to Rear Window, with the only time we ever see beyond the rear view of that, sort of block of tenement flats is when we see just the street slightly beyond in in the gap in the buildings where we see Raymond Burr's character leaving and we see Grace Kelly going down and doing her little sort of snooping around. We never break beyond the confines of that, you know, sort of little world that, you know, Hitchcock created and that obviously subsequently Dante has created. Although with Dante's obviously being on a, you know, an entire street, there's a lot more sort of room to manoeuvre. But, you know, one of the things I certainly love about the Burrs is just it's the sense of Coziness, if if that makes any sense. Yeah,
0: it's it's absolutely. It's like yeah. this is life, isn't it? I mean, this is it's um, lived in.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and. Ugh. As Steve will attest, now John, I actually live on a cul-de-sac.
0: And every time I drive up here, yeah. you know, I think well, just the, the bend yeah. in the road, it just reminds it does, me of yeah. Mayfield and Place. And I think
1: if you if you look geographically at you know the street I live on and if you look at Mayfield Place, I think my the equivalent of my house would probably be Walter's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's just at, at the far end <laughs> of, of the cul-de-sac, yeah.
2: Yeah, I lived on a cul-de-sac too in Indiana for about two years. And it's funny too to think of this movie when I say, you know, As an adult, as a homeowner, I like worry about what my neighbors think about me. When I was a kid, I didn't care at all. You know, I would tear through the people's backyards. It was completely carefree running around with my friends. What's interesting about this film is that the three main characters, uh, the three main guys, are big kids. You know, they're, (laughs) they're three guys who are running around playing army together playing you know spy there's even that moment where carol you know tells them he ray can't come out to play oh, please carol um, yeah. <laughs> yeah it has that it, yeah. it has that mentality right it's like it's they don't care what people think about them they they're playing a big game you know the clopex house is sort of the center of this game that they're playing together so i think the cul de second adds to that that that's this is their stage, this is their playground. Yeah,
1: you know, the the, the three lead roles, obviously Rick Dacoma and Tom Hanks and Bruce Dern. obviously, you know, I think they, they they are fulfilling the roles of the kids we've seen in films like you know, the Goonies, like Dante's Own Explorers, and then films like um Fred Decker's The Monster Squad. You know, or or any number of films where, you know, the kids go on some sort of wild adventure and they're basically the kids with Carol and Bonnie. Taking on the roles of the parents, mm-hmm. the one that's sort of instilling a bit of control and a sort of bit of discipline to these guys who are just yeah you know they're basically three big kids and then you throw into that then Ricky Butler played by who Corey is a big Faldman, kid. who is yeah who is a big kid yeah it's, I wouldn't hire him to pick my house no certainly not where are we are we are Ricky's parents it, it, where are they
2: yeah. <laughs> It's like it's like asking what wine gar- what Art Weingartner does for a living. Exactly, so <laughs> yeah. Why is he hanging around the neighborhood while his wife is away? The, the,
1: you know, there's there's a lot of wonderful questions, I think, that the Burbs raises, which, you know, John, obviously being an American, can you confirm the existence of a religious supply store? Is, Absolutely. Is is, Absolutely. is there such a place?
2: <laughs> there is.
1: Try as we might, I'm pretty sure that by the end this episode is just going to degenerate into a series of of things of us throwing our favorite quotes around, but, you know, well, it is. If I
0: could say one thing, though. The one car, there's one house in, the, uh, in this cul-de-sac that you never see anybody living in, then. and that's, uh, I have got it written down, it's actually in s- number 669. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. No, si- uh, 669 uh, is 668, the 668, next yeah. to the Coplex, and the Finells live there. Named after Mike Fennell, who's the producer, yeah, and he's a plumber, and he's the only one who's got actually got a job, right? There you, you go. You see it. Yeah. Fennell's plumbing at the end, and he's the only one in the street who seems to have a job.
1: Yeah, what do you know, John, about of of how the the nineteen eighty eight right the strike sort of had a bit of the of an effect on on the production of the Burbs?
2: Well, I know that uh, the only films shooting on the Universal lot at that time were the Burbs and Fletch Lips at the same time, and that. Um, I don't know if it was directly related to the writer's strike, but that they had the tours coming through the Colonial Street back lot. So they would have to keep stopping filming whenever, you know, a tour was coming by the, the little trolley that like did a little circle and then came out again, which must've been extremely frustrating. I imagine for Dante, but yeah, I, I know that Dana Olsen also gets a cameo in the film. I don't know if it's a Shane Black and predator type situation where you know, Dante wanted to have him on set to do some rewrites. You know, kind of secretly. You uh, wouldn't have been
0: allowed to because of the strike.
2: Well, exactly. I'm saying, you know, without telling anybody, just yeah. sort of like oh. Shane Black was uh, was uh, allowed on the Predator set. You know, to kind of on the hush hush do some, you know, work on the script.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know, I don't know how stringent they would have been about you know the fact that how, how do you monitor additional writing on a film set? It's, it's not something you could properly police in in, in, the, in the times of a writer's strike. You know, yeah it, it's one of those things I'm, I'm sure it went on and I'm pretty sure that's why you know Dante kept um, Dana Olson close at hand and obviously gave him a little role um, in the film when he, t- he turns up at the end as, as one of the police officers
2: yeah it's just a theory I, I mean Dante says that it actually gave them freedom to do a lot more improvising that a lot of the great lines were made up by you know Brewster and and Hanks on the spot uh so if that's true then you know it was a great collaboration between everybody to kind of get into their character and you know add some extra humor to the script
1: Oh, there's definitely a sense of, of a lot of these lines of dialogue being sort of ad-libbed and made up on the fly, especially, I think, from Rick DeComen. Yeah. Wasn't he um, originally a stand-up comedian?
2: I believe so. Yeah. I actually don't know uh, enough about him. I really should see some more films with him, other than the fact that he, of course, was the electrician in Die Hard. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Yes. Yes, he to, was to, to, hired uh, to set off the uh, – or, or to shut down the uh, the power, which is funny since – Art shuts down the power in the neighbourhood. It does, yes. <laughs> yes, yes of course.
1: Yeah. There is a, Shut it down. Shut it down now.
2: <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Hanks, uh, Hanks and Ducummen didn't get on very well on set, which is too bad because their chemistry is phenomenal in this film.
1: Yes, but
0: um, you know, the, the relationship in the film is quite prickly, I think, and I think that's the word that they use to describe the relationship on set as well, because um, Ray Peterson, you know, he puts up with art, you know, he obviously likes him a lot, but then he puts up with his antics, doesn't he? he, he, he you know, so I, I imagine it's it's quite similar. So maybe some of that relationship crossed over into the film itself.
2: I love Art's introduction where he has the gun. Art's oh, got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's easy to, you know, kind of not think about it after you've seen this movie tons of times and you know about his character, but it's a very sinister introduction, you know, where he's looking dead set, on shooting something and we don't know who he is. He's behind this, you know, shrub and, he, and it's really creepy. I noticed recently that that's the introduction of Joey in the movie Shane, that he's, you know, training a gun in the exact same way. He's hiding behind a bush. I don't know if that was a specific reference for Dante, but it's interesting because of course, in Shane, the whole idea is that they want to get Joey away from this danger and this violence, you know, and in this way, uh, art is sort of similar in that he is this powder keg that kind of, exist in the neighborhood who's gonna get Ray into trouble and is gonna have a house blow up around him at some point. <laughs> you know, that he from that point on it's just like just that like ice that's on the ground that someone's gonna slip on a bit it, eventually.
0: At the same time though, even though he looks a bit sinister when you first see him, as soon as the camera pulls back and see those ridiculous shorts. Yeah. Uh, that's not sinister at all.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you know the the characters, the casting, it's you know you you got your three main leads. Tom Hanks who you know, as much as he, uh, at that point, he was known as mainly a comedic actor from, you know, films like Bachelor Party, uh, Big. Joe vs. Volcano, Joe versus the which Volcano, is a uh, underrated gem, I think. The, the Money Pit. So many great little comedies. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I'm pretty sure that The Burbs, you know, was the last but one sort of comedy vehicle for Hanks. You know, you had Joe vs. Volcano in 1990. And then I think after that, it was. You turn on a
0: hooch straight after. Um, he came out straight after The Burbs
1: Nick. He came out that summer. Right. And I think then Punchline, wasn't it? Well, then I think the following year then, it, it, he, he did Bonfire of the Vanities, didn't he, in 1990, which obviously was a, a massive flop. And I think that was him probably trying to cut his teeth in more kind of serious roles, although it is really hard to take that film seriously. You know, the Tom Hanks, the younger generations now would, you know, would be familiar with. You know, the, 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 the Tom Hanks that we grew up with would probably seem a little bit alien uh, in comparison.
2: Mm that's a good point yeah he was you know only like a goofy sidekick in comedies like dragnet and stuff like that for like the longest time and then to see him move into the serious actor oscar-winning territory you're right is quite a transformation obviously but i think i think all of us who know those films and know the burbs and bachelor party probably you know miss those days when he was just let his hair down and just be you know fun and do a movie with pratfalls and jokes and everything and rather than a romantic comedy or a serious drama
0: and this was his um, second time on that street as well, Tom Hanks, because in Dragnet, the Virgin Connie Swale. The Virgin Connie Swale. Her
1: house was on that street. Yeah, Dragnet. I think um, when when I was um, doing the episode with Paul Shipper, the poster artist, and we, and we were talking about the, the first ever sort of one sheets that we can remember bringing home from the video store, I think the first ever one I had was a poster of Dragnet, and that was a film I just, for a little short while, a little you know period of a couple of months, I was just completely obsessed with that film. And, yeah, you know, there were films like Splash, which, you know, I I was a huge fan of at the time. And, yeah, it's just like a whole body of work which is, like, completely removed from the stuff that we know him for now. You know, certainly the likes of Saving Private Ryan, Philadelphia, and, you know, it's just, he's got a massive body of work. But then there's that... That 80s period was pretty much all comedy, correct me if I'm wrong. I can't actually think of a single sort of non-comedic role that he played.
0: Not at the beginning of his career, no. No. I think um, Punchline, was it, would be in the first
2: yeah unless we're counting mazes and monsters as a drama <laughs>
0: have
2: you guys seen that one no, no that's a very
0: early the, one The D and the
2: D uh is dangerous movie the satanic panic movie that he was in no i i've never heard of that one
1: like I, I think that was early that
2: 80s though isn't it that was yeah, yeah that's was, even earlier yeah there yeah, was a gap then before he, before
1: he became in big films yeah. yeah but then you know you've got uh, you you've got actors like bruce Dern, which i think but the point I'd seen The Burbs, I'd probably only ever seen Bruce Dern in Silent Running. I don't actually think I'd seen... Because I, I think I saw The Driver um, mm. after I'd seen The Burbs.
0: Uh, what what was the John Wayne film he Because he, he was the only man to ever shoot John Wayne was there to kill John Wayne. The Cowboys. Cowboys
1: that's it, yes. Right. Yes, yeah, so, uh, I'd yeah. seen that before as well. Even Bruce Dern is, is comedy timing. I think... <laughs> Again, you know, they, who'd have they, thought? They, 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 yeah, who'd have thought? Bruce Dern. You know, this is one of the most quotable films I can think of. Rick Coleman and I think Bruce Dern do get the lion's share of, of my favorite lines. Lines like "You keep a horse in the basement," yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know the the. I think you've said, um, John, because I think you've you've spoken about the burbs a number of times on different podcasts, and, and I think is it right that you and Chris Vandenberg have entire conversations which just consist of, of quoting the burbs
2: absolutely <laughs> yeah. both uh, huge fans and
1: believe it or not you know, my wife and I have, have had similar conversations because she's a big fan of the film and for the longest time every year when we're just um, putting the Christmas decorations up and wrapping presents is one of two films that we would watch the first was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation also from 1989 and the other one was The Burbs and it, it just became a little bit of a Christmas tradition even though The Burbs is not a Christmas film there's just something about it that's got kind of Almost got that sort of Frank Capra esque magic to it, but obviously something a little bit more sinister. And I don't. It was just it, it was a, a favorite film that we both sort of fell in love with. And and you know, obviously I was a long standing fan of the film. But the first time she ever saw it with me, you know, she just loved it. Mm. And, and we kid, you know we would quote it quite frequently to each other.
2: The kid next door is a meatball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
1: and you know, extremely quotable film. <laughs> And massive kudos to Carrie Fisher because you know she's just fantastic in the film.
2: Oh my gosh, she's at secret weapon. She's an yeah. amazing straight man in this film. Like I don't think I've, I don't think I can't think off the top of my head. I, you'd have to go back at least I think to the 30s and 40s, like the golden age of you know slapstick comedy, to find an amazing straight man like she is in this movie. I mean, I'd, I mean you know there are great straight men, but they're not ones that I laugh at. You know her reactions to everything that's going on. Make me laugh as much as any of the great comedic performances in this movie. She is absolutely phenomenal.
0: And I think part of the reason is because, you know, for me, she reminds me of my mother. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and it's just those little things really? that um, I, I find little parallels to things that, you know, your wife would do, like when, you know, in that amazing scene where uh, Courtney Gaines offers Tom Hanks the sardine. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wants them. You know, Bonnie's like, you know, I'm trying to cut back. And then Carol sort of gives him that look, like, go on, dear. You know, you, yeah. it, it'd be rude not to. Uh, yeah, there's so much of those
2: little sort of things. That's one of the best moments in the whole film. It is. I love that look. Yeah. And it's a role that you've been so thankless to. Carol could have been such a nothing role, especially since pretty much every single other character gets to be funny. Yeah. Even, you know, Wendy Shaw gets to play like a goofy character. Carol is just has to be funny on her, has to find ways to be funny without, you know, specific funny lines or funny things to do. And she nails it.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the clever things Dante does is to keep that separation between the juvenile men and the sort of, you know, far more mature women. Is none of the jokes are ever at the expense of the women; they're always at the expense of these bumbling idiot men. Oh yeah, <laughs> but uh,
0: Carrie Fisher done comedy before, and uh, you know, we, we we don't think of her often as a comedic actor, no. do we? Uh, but um, she was she did the um, Joe Dante segment in uh, Amazon Women of the Moon, yeah, which is a sex education video, which is really really funny, and of course. The Blues Brothers, Blues Brothers, yeah. Where she does, I don't think she, does she has any lines in that film. She, oh yeah, yeah. You
1: know, she she was, um, is it uh, Jake or Elwood's uh, sort of strange girlfriend? Uh, Elwood's, Elwood's, yeah. yeah. Oh. she's she's just fantastic, and and you know, by that point she was you know, part of my childhood. She she was Princess Leia, and just seeing her doing this quite a different role. But again, you you you've got to look back to Star Wars. Princess Leia is the one that has got her shit together, much like Carol is a, is is the one that's just sort of trying to bring these sort of disparate. Idiot men together and stop them from, you know, giving into these like sort of foolish ideas that she she thinks they've got about their, their sinister neighbours.
0: But she was also in uh, around the same time in uh, when Harry met Sally, which is a very you know. That it, was the same year, yeah. Yeah, of it's course. not it's not an overly comedic role, no. But uh, it is perfect comedic foil compared to you know Meg Ryan because she's the one who's always trying to get yeah. Mike, Meg Ryan out on a date, didn't she? She's got her little Rolodex with all the names of Belgian yeah. men.
2: It's true, we don't often think of her as a comedic actor, but but of course we know from her books that she's incredibly funny, very witty person, so it it makes perfect sense. I like the Leia comparison. Fortunately, there's no Peter Cushing in this movie to <laughs> inspire her to try on a British accent for yeah. a scene randomly.
1: Yeah. Should we just attack things chronologically? We, you know, we've we had the introduction, we've had the introduction of art, and there's this sort of thing about... The
2: introduction of... Uh, Rumsfield is Rumsfield. equally amazing.
1: Now, before we recorded, John, um, something I didn't know: Steve has actually done a little bit of research, and one of the bits of music when we first in, introduced to Rumsfield is actually from Patton, from Patton which yes. um, Jerry Goldsmith uh-huh. scored. Yes, yes. So he, he stole from himself. And now that you say that, it seems completely obvious. But that is—I've never clicked that that you know piece of music was either similar to or actually lifted wholesale from Patton.
0: I, I can imagine Rumsfield actually standing in front of the Sars and Stripes and giving that speech.
2: Yeah. Well, Dante returns to that in Small Soldiers too, where Chip Hazard is given his speech to the he troops is, in front yes, of yes. the flag. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, scored
0: yeah.
1: scored by Smith. Yeah, blatant Patton reference. Yeah, absolutely.
2: That's great. I love that little uh, music cue. I love the use of the Morricone when they go up to the Klopex house the first mm. time. Uh, but, but goldsmith's score throughout this movie is phenomenal it's yeah.
1: terrific, and you know we may as well just address that now you know Jerry goldsmith, I think god didn't he pass away two thousand and four two thousand and five maybe I can't say anything yeah, but you know he and um he and Joe Dante had a, you know had a had a long and you know very fruitful sort of um, you know collaboration working together goldsmith he's done so many incredible scores and
2: yeah, his, uh, his last score was for Looney Tunes' uh, Back in Action, yeah, I believe. Yeah. And it's another, it's cool, too, because he had done Poltergeist, and this film has so many cool Poltergeist references. Uh, it has three within, I think, five minutes at one point where Ray has the dream, because, of course, he watches, or it's uh, specifically Toby Hooper references, because first there's the pan over from the TV, which had been playing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, of course. Uh, which apes the beginning of uh, Poltergeist, where it pans from the TV to the bed. And then there's this chainsaw coming through the wall. And then when he wakes up, it's Mr. Rogers, who makes a cameo in Poltergeist as well. Uh, Same production designer as well uh oh, what's his name uh was that robert
1: James spencer. no, James, no. James spencer yeah uh, yeah robert stevens was the cinematographer but i i yeah. think um i, I know we, i know he and Dante have worked together before but i don't think he was Dante's regular cinematographer no it's john uh, horror john horror that's yeah. right yeah you know the, the production design it you know i'm not sure how many of those films were actually uh, sorry how many of those houses were you know actually on that back lot and how many were on the sound stage i would imagine the majority were actually on the sound stage because obviously you get a much greater control when you are actually on a sound stage well the but- Exterior is uh, Mockingbird Lane, isn't it? Where
0: uh, yes. the Munsters is from uh, yeah. and Leave It to Beaver, I think.
1: Yeah, which is not a big thing over here,
0: but I'm sh- I think it's yeah. a big thing in America, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it, oh yeah, it,
1: oh, yeah. Know, the, the film never it confines you within this little street, but never do you think you're anywhere other than in a real cul de sac.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, the exteriors are all on. The, oh, actually on the lot but then the interiors were on different sound stages
1: and and what it does well is there's a there's a good sense of geography as to where everyone is you know you know you've got Rumsfeld's house which is directly opposite Rays or, or, or kind of just opposite to the to the right of Rays and then you've got Walters, which is further off down the street, and then you've got Arts, which is further up the other end of the street.
0: Uh, yeah, I've I've actually got the house numbers here. Wow, go on. Why not? This is totally right. geek out. In yeah, yeah, in six six seven is um, Walter Sesnick. In six six eight is the Fennels. Six six nine, of course, and later six 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 is the Clopack. Yeah. Uh, six seventy is the Rumsfields. Um, the Petersons live in six seven two. Ricky Butler, um uh, no, Ricky Butler's six seven two, and then the Wine
1: Gardens are in six seven three. Wow, Steve, you could have been a production manager on the Burbs, and uh, you
2: know, I think you've missed your calling. So somebody so somebody lived in six 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 Mayfield Place for real, right? Yes, <laughs> just yeah, based yeah. on that. Just around Steve the corner. Somebody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, going back to um Rumsfield though, what's his relationship, you know, with Wendy Shell, Right. Who. You know, plays it as a bit airy. Yeah. Um, great story. Apparently, when she was um, got the job, she was doing some ironing, and he found Dante phoned her up and said, "Look, there's two women in the part. One is Mary, uh, <laughs> one is Carrie Fisher. The other one's you." She can't turn that down, can she? No. You know? And then, and
1: then um, she's playing this. I don't. Know, she.
0: I think she's like some ex-showgirl or something.
1: Trophy wife. That's the impression I like, got. I would imagine that Rumsfield being sort of maybe a career soldier, never settled down. When he finally retired from the forces find yourself a young trophy wife, and then, you know, move to the leafy suburbs. No tan lines this morning. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> I always wonder sometimes, though, whether Rumsfeld really was the military or not, you know? Oh. He just he just seems so weekend ridiculous. Warrior. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, Weekend war, exactly. Soldier of Fortune. He seems like somebody who would love to tell people that he was in the bush, you know, but was he ever? <laughs> Can we confirm that at all? I mean, I think probably for the background of the film, they said, "Yeah, he was." But sometimes I wonder because mm-hmm. I can't imagine anyone who's actually been in the army or the Marines acting the way Rumsfeld doesn't. No, it does make You're-
0: the reference to in Southeast Asia. Yeah. call this bad karma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's right.
1: And you know, you you've got him like little things like when he sat on the roof with his um, sniper rifle, and you know.
0: Eating his crackers. Eating his,
1: yeah, eating his little animal crackers. And then you've got the bit where uh, Ray is saying, oh, Why didn't you climb up? And he says, oh, it, It's very high. <laughs> yeah, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't exhibit any of the sort of things that you would no, um, you no. know, think, think of. I, heart I, and can
0: you soul, imagine yeah. a, a real soldier saying, yeah. Red Rover, Red Rover, yeah. let <laughs> go on over? Exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> Yeah. But you guys are right. Bruce Stern is so amazing in this film and nothing you would have anticipated from his previous films. Things like, you know, coming home mm. and very dramatic roles like that. I couldn't, who would have known he has such an amazing comedic talent, his pratfalls in this film, which are clearly him and not a stunt double yeah. Yeah, where, where the, they- uh, the the hose he loses slack on the hose and does the fool legs up is amazing. That's one of the best pratfalls I've ever seen. He's I'm, I'm just crazy in this movie.
1: Yeah, he's got, You know, he's got he's got physical comedy, slapstick, and then like every single one of his, his his line deliveries is just absolutely spot on. Like there go there go the the goddamn brownies and like little <laughs> things like that. But he in that moment with
0: the um, the hose, and he he called, he's like, over here, men! Yeah, 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 That's, men. that's, that's his yeah. army again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's his,
1: his whole army character, isn't it? Uh it's there's not a single sort of offbeat in the film. Um, you know the, the delivery is perfect. John, is it right? Have you seen the um the, the work print version that Dante made available for the Arrow video release of the Burbs?
2: I have. It's really interesting to watch. It, it
1: highlights for me a, a few little things. Firstly, without that Jerry Goldsmith score, it, it's just not the same film. And you know, there's a few little alternate takes. That, you know, there's a different um, scene where they actually uh, break into Walter's house. And all the little changes they seem to, you know, seem to have made, especially you know, controversially towards the end, when I think they sort of changed the ending because they saw that Tom Hanks's star was kind of like on the ascendancy, and they didn't want anything ambiguous. They didn't want people to think he'd been killed off. I, I think for me, every little change that was made was for the better. Uh, it, it was a coming together of you know the right people. Clearly, Dana Olsen, who seems to have you know come up with this idea entirely himself. You know, credit to him, but then I think a lot of the dialogue definitely is—it's is got a feel that it, it was made up on the spot.
0: Yeah, there is a moment in the alternative version though, which I would love to have seen in the in the uh, final film, and it's Ramsfield again, where as he he, he sweeps uh, when he shall off her feet mm-hmm. and he carries her over the threshold, and the, you, know, you can see there's a really nice relationship with them because throughout the film, you know, because of all the pratfalls, because of the comedy, you don't see that. Relationship between them that much, and it's a lovely little moment. I think that would have been a nice little ending.
1: Moving on to the Clopex, you know, the actual um, what initially may you know may well come across as a bit of a MacGuffin, but you know, as it turns out, the suspicions are correct. Um, I think the first one we see is, um, I think isn't it Hans? It's Hans, yes, yeah, Courtney Gaines. Courtney Gaines, you've got that, that the bit where they uh, Ray and Art are sort of egging each other on to you know. Go up to the clopex house and and say hello and, and and ring the doorbell, and and then you've got an amazing use of that Ennio Morricone score from My Name Is Nobody. Is that right, John?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: So and you know that scene where he steps out onto the under the front porch and you've got like that sort of three sixty shot of everyone sort of eyeing him up, and and that that's the film there. In that one shot,
0: I, I, I love that moment where it's, it's it is a spaghetti western yeah. moment and it zooms into each everybody's face, and then of course, it zooms into
1: Queenie, the dog. Yeah,
0: you know, that's <laughs> a, yeah. and
1: it. And it's the, the if, you, if you look at that scene and what it is, and the fact that they're making the most simple thing of two guys trying to pluck up the courage to go and ring their neighbour's doorbell and say hello. The, the way it's twisted to be made at this like sort of big dramatic event is just complete hyperbole It's just something mundane, exaggerated for comic effect. Well, yeah, but you say two guys, I think it's two kids. Two kids, yeah, that's right.
0: You know, the way they start hitting each other. You do it, you do it. No, oh, yeah. okay, you do it.
1: <laughs> One little thing that um, I noticed from the workprint version, n- none of the foley had been finalised. So throughout the bibs, there's all of these little sound effects which were added later in the final version, which when you're watching the, the work print cut are just not in there. First and foremost is the sound of the sardine. I think that was amplified a little bit. <laughs> a little and the, bit. And the, yeah. Going back to that scene we were just talking about, when Art sort of says, "Right, okay, we're doing this," and he pulls his chewing gum out of the ground out of his mouth and just chucks it on the ground, and there's like this little thud of, of the chewing gum hitting, you know, the concrete, which just isn't in the, you know, that, that was all done in foley and with additional sound effects, and it's just little things like that are just spot on.
2: Oh, there's this fantastic moment where uh, Bonnie says, "Ah, I can't remember the line," but she says something, you know, dumb. In the clopex house and you hear this little cuckoo clock go on behind her <laughs> yeah <laughs> beautiful uh what's the,
1: what's the first line that the clopex says Is Hans i came with a frame um is that because f- yeah you know there's, there's hardly any dialogue from the clopex initially and obviously brother theodore he's i think he was he was hard of hearing wasn't he um, he was yes <laughs> what
2: do you know about him john i am a massive brother theodore fan obviously thanks to this film Uh, It's the first place I saw him. But he is perfect for this film in so many ways. It's interesting, Joe Dante wanted Timothy Carey at first to play this part. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Timothy Carey. He is this wild character actor from the 60s and 70s. He was in Kubrick's The Killing and uh, Passive Glory, but also did these incredibly strange films like uh, The World's Greatest Sinner. But he was like a really tall, just wild guy who was just completely unpredictable and like a real... You know uh, firebrand uh it would have been interesting, but uh Dante said he was definitely too intense for the role. I agree, having Theodore, besides the fact that he is this funny little tiny German guy, is it perfect because he came from Nazi Germany, he came from being a victim of the Holocaust, and then late life developed this comedic persona that he would take on the Tonight Show and to do small roles in films. That was a very dark, very grim, sort of stoic comedy where he would talk about really disturbing things like, you know, how their family would cook people and stuff like that, uh, but delivered with this amazing accent, this amazing uh, deadpan delivery. So to put him in this movie, which is a lighthearted film, but has this kind of dark subtext of the sort of these things that are going on under the surface is just I'm perfect. It's just incredibly perfect casting, and I don't know. And and like the music, I don't know if it would be the same film without him.
1: But he's almost got that sort of appearance about him that he should have maybe gone into the you know films like Hammer horror films. He looks almost like he could be like another sort of Peter Lorre. He was in the Third Man. Was not he was he was uncredited as um, I think someone like um, someone on the street in the Third Man, and he was also um, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, the voice of Gollum in the, the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings.
2: Yeah, that's the other place I knew him from growing up, is that his amazing voice as Gollum in the Rankin and Bass uh, Hobbit is uh, just incredible.
0: He is really intense in this, though. He is. He, yeah. How he could, you know, every release of dialogue, it is a release of tension. You yeah. Know. Uh, you know, when they said, uh, what do they ask him about? You know, is this, is this is is he says Slavic. Yeah,
1: no, no. And uh, it's funny, I don't remember seeing a moving van out front. I don't understand. I've just parked outside all day. All day. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the way he puts the emphasis on, on the all day. is just. I remember, I think, maybe the, the second or third time I watched that on VHS. I, I, I was watching with a friend of mine, and we just rewound and replayed that little bit um, just, well, way too much. He's amazing. And then, of course, we've got Henry Gibson as Werner Klopek
2: another amazing introduction that you know coming up the stairs and the shadow making him look like a giant intimidating guy turns out it's tiny little Henry Gibson coming into the scene yeah and then you got
0: that little uh, I don't know motif from uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith as if you know it it, it's just a release. It's just this is he's only a small fella. He he is the polite one. He he's is, he is completely different to the other. You you you've got to wonder how they spend so much time together. Yeah. Because uh, he, the doctor, he you know, he's so polite. He's so he's, he's quite refined, and yet his nephew Hans looks like something out of uh, and he almost looks Neanderthal. Yeah. And then of course uh, you know the other one is uh, as we just said he's he's raging. You know. Yeah,
1: it is I think um Gibson he he's kind of like sort of fringe Joe Dante stock
2: company. He was certainly in Inner Space. Yes. Um he was in Gremlins 2.
1: Am I am I missing any of the Joe Dante films he was in?
2: He did a TV episode with him, I wanna say Oh man, what was it? Was it Eerie Indiana? Uh, yeah. he, he
1: did he did a Twilight Zone episode in eighty six, but I don't think that's anything to do with Dante. Obviously, he was in Nashville. Uh, nothing to do with Dante, but you know, just a completely different role to the one he plays in the Burbs. He was even in an episode of The Dukes of Hazard. I see. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you what. Yeah, um, he got around.
0: His cameo in uh, The Gremlins Two is great though because he doesn't say a word. He's on camera and yeah. he's smoking. The guy who and guy gets, he gets fired. fired for smoking. Yeah, yeah. by um, Robert Picardo fires him. And that it's, it's just that it's perfect little cameo that is.
2: It was Erie, Indiana. It was the episode, The Losers, he and Dick Miller.
1: So the next question, funny enough, as you should say, is how much time now of this episode are we going to devote to Dick Miller and Robert Picardo? Uh,
2: The late, great Dick Miller. I'm still so, so sad about him passing. Uh, What an amazing career, you know, and just hooking up with Joe Dante at that point in his career, you know, from the 70s on. uh, Just, you know, gave him a whole second life, you know, for a new generation that I think, you know, we all just you know should give Joe Dante a huge thanks for it.
1: most most criminally he was omitted from the you know the recent um, obituaries in the Oscars. Yeah, <laughs> a- absolute, <laughs> to absolutely shocking. You know, this goes to show, yeah, how out of touch the Academy
2: are. I, I anticipated it on Twitter before it even happened. Yeah, so. and I think yeah. then
1: subsequently, I'm not sure if you saw it, John, but we retweeted someone who had done just a little video fixing it, which was just the whole obituary was just different scenes of of, of, of Dick Miller from all the films he's been in. <laughs> that's great yeah yeah but you know that little scene with the as as, um, as Art calls and the Garbies <laughs> the Garbies garbage man again this couldn't be more fitting but as Steve pulled into my cul-de-sac before we were recording Steve what was yeah. I doing
0: yeah you were putting out the rubbish putting out the trash and I've never seen anybody do that <laughs> drive to
2: the end of the right <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> now, i like to think you really banged, banged it in there the right? the I, it, yeah. well, if,
1: if i'd had like a, a garden rake or a stick or something then i would have but yeah it um it did make me giggle and that makes me think back to the article you did for the pink smoke which was is it 101 or was it 100 things um that you love about the burbs?
2: yeah it was 100 but i don't know if i ever actually counted it
1: <laughs> yeah and and one of them was literally just the line I've never seen anyone do that before I've never seen anyone drive their car or garbage down to the you know, end of the driveway and bash the hell out of it with a stick I, I, I've never seen that it's no. just and it's delivered so straight so. it is <laughs> incredible delivery and it's, it's as if what they've seen is the most absurd thing in the world which yeah. you, know, well, you could it argue is. it is yeah, you know. yeah.
0: but uh, going back to John um, to Dick Miller um, can I just say if anybody hasn't seen the documentary about him that guy Dick Miller go out and see it if you can because it's a it's a fabulous mm. little um, documentary, and it, it, you really get a sense of the breadth of his career. Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, It's and very good. I, I watched it the day after he passed away. Yeah. yeah. It is a very good documentary. Great yeah. tribute.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the last things I saw of him was I think he was on Twitter um, wearing some sort of Christmas jumper, which someone had sent him. And I think that was one of the last um, sort of public things yeah, I saw. Yeah, and he had
0: his 90th like, birthday, not far yeah. before, and They had their party, yeah. where, you know. And he was wearing his um, party
1: jumper for that as well, I think. Dick Miller, brilliant. And of course, and we've got don't. another Joe Dante stock uh, actor, Robert Picardo. Yeah, yeah, who of course is uh, whack in uh, Explorers. Yes, he is. And he's also in Inner Space. Uh, Mr yeah, he's the cowboy. Yeah.
2: I think this is their only scene together in a Dante film, right? Yeah, it
1: could well be. And then, obviously, he um, turned up in in a more significant role in Gremlins 2 the following year.
0: Yes, yeah. And, of course, he's in uh, The Howling as
1: well. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah, of course he is. The Howling, Yeah. yeah, which I think we'll come to later, obviously so much of of, of a discussion about the burbs could just be a disjointed sort of recollection of all of these little scenes out of context with just these lines of dialogue which are only going to make sense to to people who've seen the film and i think from that point of view it's actually quite difficult to you know sort of give the film a bit of a you know structured narrative but then you know you've you've got the scene where they they actually go around visit the cloakbacks you've got that bit with the sardines which is just wonderful and then that sneezing the sneezing the which sneezing. is augmented with elephant noises something else yeah. which isn't in in the in the rough cut
2: let's not forget let's not forget let's not uh, gloss over where they go to walter's house to investigate and break into the house i love that the, this, this
1: this is one of the things that um, i often quote to my wife is if at any point in our house the children have made a bit of a mess or there's anything that's out of place i, I always revert to the line so, was it signs of a struggle? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> just a table turn. it's like, a chair yeah,
1: turned over. Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't think uh, you know a chair being overturned is a sign of a struggle, <laughs> no. but it's just these little things of little things like that are amplified and they they, they basically over dramatized to a point of just being hilarious.
0: Yeah, and uh, Walter's uh, Gail Gordon, who was in, uh, wasn't he? Was he married to uh, Lucille Ball? He was. Yeah. Yeah, and her pictures actually in the house, isn't it? On the
1: um,
2: well, again, never noticed that. He's terrific too. You know, I mean, he plays it just right, even though he's not in the film as much as everybody else. He's really good.
1: And the dog Queen Queenie.
2: Queenie. The dog from uh, Silence <coughs> the Lambs, yeah. Yeah. And again, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that must be a traumatized
1: dog. Oh, I know. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I, I, I've got as, again as Steve will attest I, I've not got the most sort of um, uh, masculine looking dog when I'm walking no, it around not, the streets no. it's, it's, although he makes enough noise Yeah, it's, it's, it's a miniature hound, but on occasion I will refer to her as Queenie <laughs> even though it, that's not her name but just yeah just as a little sort of throwback to the burbs it's just a film that I just can't help but quote and when you meet someone you know the Sinter films, and you, you you sort of get to know them when you find out that they love the Burbs it's, it's, it's at that point then where the floodgates open and all of these Burbs quotes come out and I, you know I've met maybe only a handful of people Steve being one of them um, Neil, Neil Gaskin uh, who's also part of the film 1819 being another who just knows these little you know, lines of dialogue and what they mean to people like us
2: Oh, absolutely I mean, like you said we could spend the rest of this uh, episode just quoting lines like "Came with the frame
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: uh, That's what they tied up in the old cellar room yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and you know, my, my favorite one of, of you keep a horse in the basement <laughs> again, you know it 's all about hyperbole, this big dog but then he he 's making up this a horse it 's just absolutely ridiculous. And he never turns up again. I think the, the dog's name was Landru. Actually, yeah,
0: the, it's named after a serial killer, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, and it, I think it was possibly a reference to Henry Gibson might have put it in himself. But I don't think that's ever clarified. And I actually had to put the subtitles on to actually make out what the name of the dog Mm. was. Well, while we're on the subject of dogs, don't forget, of course, Queenie with a little hatchet in her head. (laughs) The dream sequence. It is, Yeah. And again, going back to, I previously mentioned Paul Shipper, the poster artist, who was sort of like the person who drew Struzan, who celebrated his birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Drew. He sort of handed the torch to Paul Shipper, who was kind kind of taking on that sort of art style now. Paul Shipper has done, he's drawn an amazing poster of the burbs. And front and center of that poster, and unlike any other poster of the burbs I've seen, is actually Walter coming out of the trash can with the axe in his head, holding Queenie with the, with axe, the axe in her the head. head. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, if, you, if you check out Paul's website, paulshipper.com, and have a look at that poster there, it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Well,
0: that's a great little dream sequence. That
1: is, yes, and the dream sequence. Of course.
0: Yeah, I know. What we also, and of course, um, Kevin McCarthy was originally in it. He was as Ray's boss because the original story had, well, it was a story they were pl- toying with that um, Ray had actually lost his job. Yeah, uh, and that's why he was off for that um, particular time, and he was too afraid to tell
1: yeah. Carol. And it's weird because the workprint version, in in the dream sequence where Kevin McCarthy appears, he's actually got a line of dialogue that he says to Ray of, "Have n't you got something you?" You want to tell your mm. wife. It's always hinted at in the work print, but they never actually reveal the fact that he's, he's, he's no longer employed. He's lost his job, which is, is odd. It's kind of like the work print was made at a point where I'm not sure if they f- you know thought they were going to run with that actual plot well, yeah, th- point.
0: Th- there was going to be a scene right at the very end where Carol confesses, you know, that when, when the street is mm. basically burnt down and everything's gone wrong. He confesses to her and then she says, I know. I, yeah. you know so you, you can't keep anything from Carol.
1: So you've got an amazing dream sequence, and then you've got a number of film references. John, I'll hand over to you.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I'll say I'm glad that they cut the uh, job subplot. You know, I think, obviously, it would be it would have been great to have seen Kevin McCarthy in the film, but I can't imagine why it would be relevant to what happens in this movie. But the dream sequence, the horror aspect of this film, the parts that are actually genuinely scary, that as a kid I remember thinking were scary when they tell the story of skip the soda jerk right who went crazy mm-hmm. and killed his family who were decomposing in the summer heat that whole sequence, and then they talk about the sentinel for you know name drop the sentinel which is an amazing horror movie and then it comes back in the dream sequence where art comes out dressed as skip and says hey ray it's not it's not skip it's art you know it's like that's a really genuinely freaky thing that happens in the middle of the movie art looks genuinely scary as skip you know Coming mm-hmm. out with the uh, making ready to make the uh, cream soda, you yeah. know? So I love that this film has moments like that where it's still, you know, Dante's still got the little bit of the howling in him, you know, where he can still have scary images within this, you know, largely comedic movie. And on top of things like just how off-putting brother Theodore is in the film or how freaky kind of albino looking Henry Gibson is these little mo- these little touches that like make you actually care about how it's going to all end up you know if these people if Ray really is in danger if these people really are homicidal it just kind of adds an extra layer to the film
1: it does uh, and I, I love the way that you know horror is peppered throughout obviously you've got the references to you know you actually see footage from uh, the Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, what's the other film? Um, um, Ride of the Devil. Ride of the Devil, of course, with the um, uh, sacrifice. Well, you mentioned there, John, about the little story about Skip the Soda Guy. That always reminded me of Phoebe Kate's story when she tells Zach Gallagher about her father. And, and that's like that, that's one of the most sort of eerie and, and actually uncomfortable moments in Gremlins.
2: Yeah, and uh, John Sayles as the mortician in The Howling where he tells the story about, you know, the guys, and It's very similar to that moment. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he's it, it, always going back to this sort of, um, you know, these, these horror roots. Because I think it goes out saying that Joe Dante horror... Was a massive influence.
0: Well, on here's it. a question for you, because if you have a look on EMDB it says that The Burbs is the first Joe Dante film, which wasn't
1: a horror or wasn't sci-fi. Now I don't agree with that. I think it's a horror. It, it's, um, I think it's a horror thriller comedy. Comedy, f- it, yeah, of course, foremost. It's comedy, but yeah, yeah but you
0: know, it, it, I think horror genre is so wide, that people sometimes mm. narrow it. But uh, I think it's certainly horrific in, in moments. We forget about it now because we've seen And we're so familiar it with it, it is, yeah, and we're so familiar with the comedy. But when you first watch it, yeah, there is a sense of unease throughout,
1: yeah. Then you know, there's the you know the little um jump scare with the chainsaw coming through the wall, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ah, right. One other thing is when they're in Ray's Man Cave, book they're reading, yeah, it's by Julian Carswell, who uh-huh. is the character from um Jack Turner's Night uh, of the, Night the Demon. Demon, yeah, that, that, that's a reference. So I've only sort of picked up on in the last year or two. Yeah, there's a few references. Isn't because in the Clopex, in their house, they've got yeah. a, uh,
0: a sled with rosebud on it. it yes,
1: that's right. Now, yeah. this is a film I first saw pretty much 30 years ago. Yet, I, I'm still picking up things. Yeah. Like little nuggets, little... Um, and then the cereal is Gremlins. Yeah, Gremlin cereal. But then there's also this another, real, there's another cereal in there. Freakies. Freakies, right. Which... I oh, know that. <laughs> You know, there's, there's another sort of meta reference hidden in there, which for the life of me now I can't remember but there's all these little nuggets and, and there's so much like little rich detail in the film it's almost as if, confining the film to that, you know, one little location, they're able to focus on things with, with so much more intensity and there's like so many of these little moments, it's just, I know it's a bit of a cliche thing but the, the film, everything about it comes together perfectly and everything works and there's I don't think there's a single frame of that film I would change no i think if you remove anything from it or or change anything in the film you upset the balance and it just doesn't work as well how much of that was you know constrictions caused by the right to strike um or, or the budget
2: i don't know the night of the demon reference is particularly great because it kind of inverts the theme of that movie which is that you have this character doesn't realize he's in danger and doesn't believe that there's something wrong you know that this one is one is about characters looking specifically for something dangerous and something evil and maybe even supernatural. So it's kind of an another thing that just sort of adds to the fun of this movie and the references.
1: And then obviously you've got the scene where you know the, the classic scene in Ray's backyard where they find the bone and that shot. Yeah, that shot, which you know, I think that that was. That was one of the ones where um, I think on my first and that's what that's where I totally fell apart. Is, yeah. is that shot where they're holding <laughs> the bone, the cameras moving in and out? And I think it's the one shot that Dante said that if he if he made the burbs now, he wouldn't put in. I think that would be a mistake. It's a, yeah, it's a yeah. little bit. I think he finds it a little bit too wacky and almost a little bit too. Yeah, I think I overstepped the line there. But again, I,
2: I no, think it I works. Think it's perfect. It
1: does. It works. Yeah, yeah.
2: He undermines himself because there are so many great cartoony moments put into this film, which, again, we were just talking about having all these horror elements, Mm. you would think having an art-shaped hole in the woodshed after he falls into it wouldn't work in a film where they have, you know, skip the soda jerk story, you know, and creepy things like The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre happening, but it does. Yeah. And only Dante could do that. Only Dante. You know, you've
1: hit on something there, John, where you say about Looney Tunes because, you know, characters like Wile E. Coyote, Daffy Duck, they were pretty much invulnerable you, you look at the burbs look at art for example he gets hit in the head with a pickaxe <laughs> <laughs> he gets electrocuted by, complete by with fingernails. black fingernails <laughs> yeah black fingernails you know, it was, you know it was clearly hot enough to melt all his credit cards together it, it is looney tunes it, it's almost like a cartoon and, and, and it's got kind of like cartoon violence in the film again at no point does that ever pull me out of the film because we are like you say we're in Joe Dante's little sort of microverse and it's got like a different kind of laws of physics and stuff you know and like a a regular film.
0: I've got to say the line because we are quoted so many lines tonight but uh, you know what's that? It's a bone. It's a femur bone. It's a a femur bone. What do you think? This comes from a
2: chicken? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dante just knows how to, like, you know, pull it back when he needs to. You know, How far to go. I think think he knows. Uh, The ending was something that they struggled with because they didn't know how to reveal the Klopeks were bad guys. One of the ideas was to have the garbage men's bodies be in the trunk, which uh, never would have worked in a Dante movie because, well, I mean, the fact that, you know, don't kill off Dick Miller in a movie. I don't want to see that. I always secretly, you know – Hold it against the Terminator or Chopping Mall when they kill off Dick Miller. He's a sweetheart.
1: Yeah,
0: there was there was also going to be some uh, cheerleaders. Yeah, as there was well. supposed
2: they, to
1: be. Yeah, I think there were another subplot they were looking at using was that yeah these cheerleaders had been going missing and it turns out that the Clopacks had done it. But I think you know, ultimately though you know the way they went with you know the, the the former sort of residents, the Naps being these like elderly people who didn't want to you know sort of sell their house to the Clopacks. You know that's something they eventually yeah ran another
2: with. another version of the script early on was to have Tom Hanks die. It was yeah. to have Ray be taken away in the ambulance. And the implication is that he's been killed by the Colpex. Again, that's just too mean spirited for a it Dante is. film. You know, it's, he knows exactly the right amount of humor and exactly the right amount of horror to put into a film, but he would never do anything that mean-spirited i know comparisons have been made to the end of twilight zone where um Kent is taken away by the ambulance and it turns out dan Aykroyd is in there and you know the implication being that he's going to kill him the way he killed albert brooks at the beginning of the movie yeah and Landis and don comparisons you know are abundant but i think that's exactly the difference between them i think that landis is willing to go into kind of more mean-spirited territory with dante he would never do that you know he has certain things in his films that are a bit, you know, a, a bit more edgy than other things, but he knows the exact balance where he's going to keep his audience interested and invested without doing something to like sweep the carpet out from under their feet, which is something that is not hard to pull, not not easy to pull off at all for anybody. Now, so, I think that he likes
0: his characters though a lot yeah. more. He, he really, he really them, enjoy, exactly. Yeah, he, he, he enjoys spending time with them. I think, and so to so, to kill them off or to do anything mean spirited, I, I think that would be almost hurting them, and he wouldn't like to do that.
1: The, the film moves into like the sort of latter third where the Clopecs are going off to as as they said uh, you know the day before they, they've they got to go off to a new university to see about a new move elsewhere yeah. somewhere else in the country to obviously find more victims but then you know, you've got that latter part of the film now where they're going full on into well basically turn into burglars you know because they now convince themselves that the Clopecs are are up to no good and, and I think it's at that point then where we have get quite a bit of the slapstick obviously the disarming of the alarm you've got Rumsfield falling off the roof and, and and then things obviously ramp up to this big conclusion with them digging into the basement hitting the gas line the house blows up then we've got another Western callback. A the uh, th- thermostat on a home
2: furnace That's supposed to go to 5,000 <laughs> five thousand? <000 members? laughs> five thousand degrees. Five
1: thousand degrees is almost as hot as the surface of the sun. Why the hell would you ever want a furnace that goes that hot anyway? Well, that's the thing about the Clopex. We never really know what they yeah. do, who they are. You know. Yeah. We know that they they're very odd. Well, he's. I think we know that uh, Werner Clopex is is he's a very well known and respected pathologist. And you're lucky <laughs> you didn't kill him in that blast.
0: <laughs> but we we don't actually know what you know what is it that they I mean, they've got a, a trunk full of skulls yeah we don't know why no you know, is it a, just another art project like the painting yeah. that um, you know we, Who, we didn't mention that earlier on But think
1: if you think about it too much what are they actually doing to those people before they've actually incinerated the bodies yeah Bear in mind the um, you know the painting that we see in yeah, yeah, so the cloak
2: is done.
0: And after that, is always turning it upside
2: yeah. down. They, <laughs> Do you guys know what that painting is? It was used at one of the opening sequences of Night Gallery. You know, when Rod Sterling would walk in front of all the paintings, it's supposed to be a surgery from the yeah. point of view of the patient.
1: No way. Ah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Wow. And yet, when you turn it upside
0: down, it looks like some demons of you know.
2: I just love the way that
1: Rumsfeld has just sort of got his hand on his chin he's pondering the picture yeah. as he turns it you know yeah, because that's angles. what he looks
0: like to me I don't know if it's the same to you guys but when he turns it upside down he looks like a demon actually reaching yeah. down and he's got the hands reaching up
1: yeah because I think you can actually see the sort of open sort of Ooh, chest yeah. of, of the person as well so I think that yeah that's the point of view is it's, it's drawn from that's yeah again gives a new like, sort of grim angle of that but then you know going towards the end which obviously we've discussed was changed quite considerably when I was sort of tinkering with doing some notes earlier on today about, you know, the burbs and, and certainly the climax. I, I'd made a comparison I'd never made before because you've got, you know, once you know you've had the you know the, the struggle with Werner Klobeck and he's arrested, you've got a little bit of the end, the the sort of little cherry on top where Hans sort of escapes and Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld tackles him to the floor hey put over yeah. you. and then things sort of you know they 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 wind up they sort of you, you've got the police you've got the fire brigade you've got um, the ambulance you've got uh, buildings on fire you've got cars destroyed you've got debris flying everywhere I was just thought my god it's the ending of Die Hard <laughs> and again which Die Hard you know it, it finishes on that high with you know if this is their idea of Christmas I've got to be here for New Year and then there's parallels then to sort of um, you know R- Ricky's Line of God, I love this street, and yeah. then you 've got the music swelling obviously in die Hard It's let it snow, and then in this film it 's just that incredible music at the end, and then you 've got the roll call you 've got mm. the character roll call, which goes back to a film you mentioned earlier, John that we obviously love you at film eighty nine predator you know yeah. you, you hadn 't seen that sort of and I know they were far more popular in in westerns and also comedies, but that, that sort of roll call of the characters at the end with the music is just. It builds to a crescendo, as much as you know, it's not got your big, massive, grandstand and ended. But then there's just this this feeling of just, I don't know, I, I can't even put it into words. It, it, it's my happy film. <laughs> uh, by the end, it always gets me thinking, yeah, this is by far one of my favourite films.
2: So you'd say Ricky Butler is the Argyle of the Burbs?
1: He Yeah, yeah, he'd be the Argyle because he's sort of like this... He, he's watching things. He's not directly involved, but he does sort of contribute to things slightly. Yeah, he's yeah, he's the Argyle of of, of the Burbs. See, again, 30 years on, and I'm I'm finding new little things I love about this film.
2: You know, something I just thought of that I'd never thought of before as you were talking was Ray, you know, take me to the hospital. I'm sick. He <laughs> wants to go to the hospital. Uh, and then he, you know, finally, man- they finally managed to uncover the Clopex. And then he and Carol have that nice moment, you know, together. And then he walks off, does he not need to go to the hospital anymore? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. He oh, decided he's okay. In, well, that, in, was in, yeah.
0: that was a moment um, that was ad libbed as well, wasn't it? That moment when he
1: picks up yes. the yes, yeah, drags it back,
0: checks yeah. into the back of the ambulance. Take me to the hospital. I
1: think. Well, I think in the least, he, he would definitely have internal injuries and certainly smoke he, inhalation. So yeah, I think he needs to go. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah. if you he,
2: he, can... he should go to the hospital, Ray. Definitely,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So just um, you know, wrapping things up on the bur- the burbs now, John. What are, what are your final thoughts on this film before we obviously go on to the next bit, which will be our, our favorite Joe Dante films?
2: Um, the ending of whether you know the Clopex should be revealed to be ghouls or monsters or not, you know, is something I think about a lot because the theme of the movie it works against the theme of the movie to have them be the monsters because the idea again is, you know, we're the ones. He he, he has the monologue right. We're the ones breaking into people's mm-hmm. houses. Uh, that sums up so perfectly what this movie is about, which is that the seemingly innocuous suburbanites are the bad guys. Yeah. You know, you have a monsters to do a Maple Street situation where they're untrusting and they uh somewhat xenophobic. They don't like people who aren't social. They don't like people who are outcasts. It's interesting to kind of let them off the hook by revealing that Werner Klopek is going to kill Ray and that they have a, a trunk full of skulls, whatever they're up to. Kind of works against that but again Dante makes it work you know it's just that's the only way they could have ended this film it would have been so unsatisfying to have it any other way you know you can't just end the film on these guys blew up the house I guess they were wrong that's it good night folks mm. you know it has to be something satisfying and it has to have good conclusions so even though it works against the whole sort of idea the movie that's been enjoyable throughout the film I think it's the right. I I think it's the right end. Yeah, it's what it's the conclusion I come
1: to. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying here, John. Because ultimately, you've got this sort of message throughout the film of of, of social conformity. The fact that you've got these people who've moved into the neighbourhood, they don't follow the norms that are expected of them. They don't maintain their lawn. Their house is falling apart. They they don't interact with their neighbours. They don't have barbecues. They act in an extremely strange way, and because they're different, that sort of gets everyone else thinking that they're up to no good. And yeah, they, you know, logically, you could take that to the conclusion of no, they're just different. They're not up to it. You know, they're not doing anything sinister. But then, you know, that's not going to work for what the film is ultimately trying to be, which is a bit of light-hearted entertainment.
0: Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, you could look for a, you know a message in it if you wanted to. Yeah. Maybe the message is that ultimately, you know, the cul de sac, the this um, conformity is a good thing because that's the one way of exposing. You know, madmen, murderers, yeah, murderers, yeah. You know, because <laughs> you know, because they obviously they don't look after their loans. Mm. If you look for a, a, a median, I think that you, you you're not looking at the film properly.
2: Yeah, as it is, I think it was probably a bad idea the Clopex not to maintain their lawn and act mm. normal if they have this stuff going on in yeah. their basement. You know, they probably. Would have been uh, much wiser to have put on a facade for everybody else. Yeah, like we said
0: we, uh, already, we, we don't uh, we we don't give everything away. In, you know, at the end of the film, we still don't know what they're doing. We still don't know what uh, they're doing in the basement. We still don't know what causes that uh, wind to blow. You know, as soon as you cross the threshold.
1: Yeah,
2: what what is that all about?
0: Yeah, you know, so, no. you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions at the end
2: yeah yeah it it kind of eats its cake and has it too, you know, but we can forgive it. Chris Vdberg always always was of the opinion until you know we just kind of heard the background of the film and saw the documentaries and the work print. He was convinced that it had to end on Ray's speech originally and that they added the stuff you know where they reveal the clopex afterwards because it didn't work um but, but they have both of them in the movie, and it's okay it works it does it does it does
1: and I'm going to pass on say my final thoughts on the film because I, th- I, th- I think you already know but I think it's probably going to be uh, featuring in my favourite three which we're going to move on to shortly Steve uh, i will
0: exactly the same you, you know it's going to appear there
1: so there you go that is our sort of um, rundown of why we love the Burbs and, and why it still works 30 years on
2: we told you the rules oh the rules remember the first one, one. you can't get them wet but you didn't listen Two. Don't let them uh, get exposed to bright light, especially sunlight. We made it very clear.
1: And the third one is don't let them...
2: Uh... Three. But you uh, got confused. All right, let's go over everything again, all right? We warned you. You keeping some kind of pet in there? Good, Good bad, ah! oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. You okay? How's your hand?
1: Now, they're back.
0: Wilder. Well, it's rather brutal here. We're advising our clients to put everything they've got into canned food and shotguns.
2: Tougher and scarier. If these things get out of the building, then that is it for New York. We've just got some uh, problems. They say this is the city that never sleeps. Now, it has a reason. Gremlins 2. The new batch, rocking your way this summer. Check it out one time, won't you?
1: So now onto our favorite three section, and keeping things, uh, you know, in tune with uh, the film we've just discussed, we're going to be discussing our favorite three films from director Joe Dante.
2: Since we all obviously have the burbs in our top three, should we do our next favorite three? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, uh, you know... It, well, well, I, I, I'm happy to do that if you wish. Uh, no, I, yeah. I,
1: I, I'm going to keep it as it is because oh, like uh, unfortunately <laughs> the, the, the burbs in the position is in is unshakable. But um, yeah. John, should we start with you? What's your number three?
2: Okay, I would say these are not ranked because I just love all of them. These just happen to be in my top three uh matinee is uh, a film he did 93 it came out in 93 yeah Uh, i love matinee uh obviously it's the film he made after gremlins 2 and it feels like the one even though gremlins 2 is the most joe dante film ever made matinee feels like a film he needed to make it makes it makes sense that he would want to come back to a film celebrating the b movies and uh the 60s and the way that it does uh it's just uh, again it's just a film that seems like it it landed in the right hands you know that uh, Dante ended up doing it uh John Goodman is incredible in the movie it's a fun film it's got some drama in there that maybe is unexpected uh but of course plenty of comedy Mant the movie that uh the producer is making in the film is absolutely incredible and only recently we got the uh the Blu-ray, which had the entire footage shot for mant which is wonderful because you can see Dick Miller in the background of the film. <laughs> he's, you know, introduced, of course, as a an actor pretending to be a protester in front of the theater, saying that this film is too shocking and violent for people to see. And then we see he's actually in the <laughs> movie itself. I, I love Matinee. I think it's uh, a great work. It's a great mature work, which again has great themes and is not sentimental in any way, but at the same time, kind of. Has Dante's opinions on why movies are so profound for everybody and why culturally they're so important in the 20th century? Phenomenal film.
0: Yeah, um, as um, we're on the subject of Matinee, I, I'm not putting these in any particular order because they're all outstanding. They're all fabulous. So I'll I'll say Matinee as well. Yeah. Um, so that's your number three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, you know the the film Mant is is mm-hmm. just great. Half man, half ant, all yeah. terror. You know, and there's a great line in it, you know, when they say, um, was it, uh, oh, uh, was it, why didn't you grow up? And was it, be a man and put the insect aside? insecticide? Insecticide?
2: Oh, where? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, it's, a, and it's it, as you say, it's a very mature film and it's got a lot to say about the role of horror yeah. and um, the importance of, of horror and telling mm-hmm. stories in our you know, in our society to even
1: today. Well, yeah, because I always say that films of the, of, of the time, certainly genre films, can reflect society's fears. And obviously, films from the 1950s, um, you know, science fiction films, they were all, you know, fear of nuclear annihilation and, you know, the the war against communism. This is a film that that is basically full of of social commentary um, of those sort of things. But the other thing is, to me, it's a love letter to the films of William Castle. Of course yes because obviously John Goodman's character in the film he is for all intents and purposes William Castle he's a film director you know he's not making particularly great films he's making these schlocky sort of B almost C grade movies but what he's doing is he's trying to introduce these little gimmicks you know and if you're familiar with the films of William Castle this was a guy that he was trying to come up with month after month. New gimmicks which he would install in theaters, like um, which is the film where he, he actually put like an electric buzzer under the uh, chair. Thirteen Ghosts. Thirteen Ghosts, there. yeah. Which random members of the audience, you know, in moments on screen where they would be, you know, a jump scare would be getting shocked out of their seats. It's 4D cinema. It's basically 4DX, but then you know, back in the you know in, in the 50s
0: yeah. and 60s. I, I love the way that there's a little scene in there where they're at the gas station and he sees a, a little uh, alligator there and he's um, trying to think of a story up on the spot. Galligator Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's great. No, it, it's it, obviously
2: it, a love letter to Castle, but I think even more so Roger Corman, who, of course, Dante yeah, yeah. got his start working for. You know, the, the movie Mant itself, uh, the gimmicks obviously are Castle, but the the movie Mant itself resembles more of like a Roger Corman, mm. uh, Sam Markoff type of movie, I think. And
0: Joe Dante's supposed to be working on a, a biography of Roger Corman. Is it the man with the played that's Bays? It, it is. Yeah, but he I is. Um, I'm not
1: sure if it's going anywhere. Yeah, I think there's... there's, there's I think he mentions it in a recent um interview I saw um oh what's the guy with the white hair that does all the horror interviews? Mick Harris. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I think I'm sure he mentioned it. Um but, but again it sounded like something that wasn't even in the sort of pre production stages, so I don't know if we'll ever see that unfortunately. Oh. It's listed as I know they had a
2: they had a script reading of it at some point. Oh, so maybe or it is a bunch tri- of people got together and actually did a script reading, yeah. So or or was that or, or that was the termite terrorist movie, I can't remember. One of those two films, uh, I hope, gets made at some point, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, Matinee was certainly a film I considered for my list, along with another Joe Dante film that got pushed out. And for better or worse, uh, maybe it's a controversial choice by me, but I wanted to pick a film that I probably could have bet money on that you guys wouldn't have picked. It's the first Joe Dante film I saw in the cinema. It's Gremlins 2. Fabulous. Yeah. 1990 was... That that for me was a very sort of special year. It's, it's a year where I think I became most aware of cinema and and forthcoming films and actually started to really sort of fall into this black hole of, of loving films. Now that that summer, uh, you, know, you talk about the writer's strike in 1988, one of the films that, that had a negative impact on was a film that I was so excited for, I couldn't even put into words, was Robocop 2. Robocop being my favorite film, so I was gonna get a mention most episodes. In late 89, early 1990, I was reading magazines like Starlog, um, which which were being imported from the US. Um, Magazines like Fangoria, which were also giving it coverage. You know, I I was taking in every little thing I could about forthcoming films that year because you know I was so obsessed with getting every little snippet of information about Robocop two, which ultimately, as it turns out, was a massive disappointment for me. But you know, in in buying all of those magazines and reading them from cover to cover, I was picking up little things about other films. Nineteen ninety was the summer of the sequels. You had another forty eight hours. You had Die Hard two. Uh, you had Gremlins two. Back to the Future Part three. I think you know Robocop two, obviously. You know the the amount of. of sequels that were coming out that year was absolutely ridiculous and and gremlins 2 is i always remember because when i actually went to see it uh, in the summer of 1990 i actually saw it back to back with back to the future part 3 another film that i was like feverishly looking forward to and i'm not going to make any case for gremlins 2 being anywhere near joe dante's best film but what it is for me it's joe dante unleashed full-on it's all out unbridled craziness It's like as if they said, Joe, if you never make a film again and there's no repercussions, just fill your boots and just go all out crazy. His love of Hammer Horror is embraced in in the casting of Christopher Lee as a mad scientist, the the, the brilliantly named Dr. Catheter. Uh, You've got John Glover's Daniel Clamp gives Dante scope to poke fun at a certain entrepreneur at the time who now sits in the big chair at the White House. It's just like the sheer variety of, of different ideas that... Dante is cramming into Gremlins too It's amazing that the film just doesn't completely buckle and you know maybe some might argue that it is a series of in jokes and, and references That's fine. to That's fine. it is fine and you've got to look at the target audience at the time which was me yeah it was me yeah <laughs> it, it's almost like much like the birds but this ramped up to eleven where he's trying to sort of bring to life a Looney Tunes cartoon in fact, there are animated segments in it one of the gremlins who becomes electricity that he's actually yeah, animated. Yeah whilst the film shows no restraint whatsoever it is a huge load of fun and it's just a film that i'll, I'll always like and, and be and have a fondness of even though ultimately i know it's nowhere near as good as the original it's, it's, a, it's got a very special place in my heart um and i think a lot of the my love of the film may be nostalgia but yeah that's it that's my number three Moons two yeah, I um,
0: I'd I love Gremlins. As I said earlier, in the you know when we started this, uh, I saw it eight times in the cinema. Wow! Um, and every time I laughed. And yeah. there's things that I could watch now, and it's like the Naked Gun. It's like Airplane. It's mm. that kind of zaniness. And you know, he had a chance to do it later with um, Looney Tunes, but there was so much studio interference mm. that you know that that never quite worked. Whereas in Gremlins two no interference, you've made us a lot of money, do it again, do whatever you want. And I think they were probably quite surprised when they, he turned up with the film. Yeah.
1: John, what's your thoughts on Gremlins 2?
2: My thoughts on, well, should I go to my number two? Because it's Gremlins 2. Wow, dog.
1: <laughs> Well, I, I underestimated you, John. I, I didn't think you'd pick it, but well, yeah, there you go, fire away.
2: Oh, absolutely, I agree. It's Dante unleashed entirely, and uh you mentioned the animated sequences. Obviously, it's great that, He convinced Chuck Jones to come out of retirement to Mm. do those bookend scenes with Daffy and Bugs. Uh, Just one of the very many special things. And we talked in the uh, episode about how wrong it is to kill Dick Miller off. Of course, if you only see gremlins, you assume he's dead. You assume that, assume that Murray Futterman has been killed. Yeah gremlins 2 brings him back because you can't kill dick miller you gotta you gotta resurrect yeah. him so i'm glad dante got a chance to do that but i agree there's just an energy to this film you just get lost in it, and before you know it it's just your it's the end <laughs> because it's just a roller coaster ride from the beginning speaking to the one setting of the burbs setting the entire thing in the neighborhood i think the biggest flaw in gremlins 2 is that he takes us out of the clamp tower to have them in Billy's apartment at one point. Yeah, and there's also it's,
0: seen in the street, isn't it? Yeah, with the uh, Futtermans,
1: with the uh, yeah, the, yes. the, the, the winged um, gremlin, yeah, yeah. which yeah. eventually well, turns into the gargoyle, yeah.
2: Which, which he re- uh, reused part of Jerry Goldsmith's score from The Burbs to uh, did, yes. when yes, Backramund yeah. is born, yeah. It's still around Clamp Tower, though, to take it as far away as Billy's apartment, I think, is the only part of the film... Where you cut the kind of dra- oh, and I guess he goes on the date in the restaurant. So there's that too. So never mind. They still have Dick Miller delivering that great line that only Dick Miller can say. Somebody sat on the bus when he gives them the pie. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, and of course his wife is um, uh, Jackie Joseph, who was in a number of uh, of Roger Corman films back in the day as well with Nick- Dick Miller, wasn't
2: she? Yeah, and she gets resurrected as well yeah. in this film. Yeah. The Flutterman survive. Um, But I I would absolutely say I prefer this to the original Gremlins, as great as Gremlins is. I think it's just got more Dante in it. You know, it's got more of his interest and personality and this idea, this giddy destruction that he loves, you know, blowing up the Klopex house or destroying uh, Clamp Tower, spending the entire film just taking this technological wonder and breaking it apart, having the Gremlins just go to town on it.
0: And then a musical sequence too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, And then again, some scariness with the spider gremlin, you know, there's just everything that Dante does well is in this film and even some self-referencing of the first film, breaking the film apart in the middle, you know, just, Mm. it's just, it's just an insane fun. I got to see Dante at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music when they were doing a retrospective of his films and they showed uh, this film. He also showed the movie Hell's a Poppin', uh, which he said was his main inspiration for this film. And it's just a great classic Hollywood movie where there's no plot uh, but there are musical numbers and a lot of comedy and just very witty you know, uh, dialogue back and forth that's all just connected by the fact that it's fun and it's well put together so that you're just enjoying yourself the whole time and that's Gremlins 2 for me in a nutshell
1: John, I'm going to have to stop you because if you carry on you're going to convince me that I like the film more than Gremlins and if you do that's going to really upset my list
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I would place number 2 higher than the first
1: Really? Yes, I would, yeah. Wow. We're ganging up on you now. Yeah. Well, (laughs) keep going, guys. You might convince me.
0: Is it your number two? Uh, No, no, no. Actually, neither of the gremlins make my top three, which is a bit of a surprise. Uh, my number two is actually explorers. Wow! Yeah, I love explorers. Wow. Um, I love the the, the beginning was it was my childhood. Mm-hmm. Late, you know, staying late at late at night, watching um, sci-fi films and you know uh, old uh, classic Universal horrors, and this idea, this dream of being able to go into space, it, it's just so captivating. And then when they get there, it's it pulls up all Joe Dante. You know, uh, it's nothing like you would expect whatsoever. And I can see why they had difficulty marketing this. Stuff. Mm. I can see why that um, people didn't quite know what to do with it. Because when we finally do go into space and we do see the aliens, they are nothing no. like
1: you would expect. It, it's it's all out wacky. Um, this, this isn't a film right, I've seen since the late 80s. No. But I do remember feeling that when they actually see the aliens and they just completely know what you would expect even then at that age I think I felt I was like oh whoa this this is not what I was expecting no. God I've not seen it since but that's the only sort of vague memory I've got of the film
2: yeah,
0: uh, we got uh, Robert Picardo is whack the um, alien, yeah. and he's also I, I, don't, I don't know the name of the character. he's something like Star Lord or something. Something like that. Hmm. In the drive for, uh, drive in, they, there's a really bad sp- science fiction film where hmm. you can see this, uh, the um, the Us. wires. Yeah. Star Killer. Star Killer. That's it. And uh, you know he's he's on, and of course Dick Miller's in it, of course. Yeah, I think I think so. And and for me, it's Joe Don um, Jerry Goldsmith's greatest soundtrack really I love the soundtrack oh, wow. it's what I have listened see, to now. over and over again and there's one piece called Construction which is a you know big almost like an anthem and at the end there's a slight pause and every time that pause I've got to say tonight mm. we launch and then it's a crescendo and I've got to do it every single time
1: see now I'm definitely going to have to seek Explorers out and rewatch it because yeah I genuinely don't think I've seen it since the late eighties,
0: Oh, it's a wonderful
1: film. John, uh, what are your thoughts on the Explorers? I say, uh, I say, sim- I say, the Explorers is
2: actually just Explorers. <laughs> yeah, uh, similar. Sky, I, Explorers is definitely the the major Joe Dante film that I am the least familiar with, mm. and I have revisited the least. It's just something that never really excited me the way his films do. It's something that definitely deserves my attention. I need to go back and watch it again and I really get into it because there are some really interesting things about it, and I'm sure that there's uh, a lot of joy in that film that I just didn't find the few times that I've seen it. And I know Dante had you know issues with the final cut that you know that there were some mandated things that he didn't agree with. So maybe that no, that knowledge might have something to do with the fact that I'm not willing to give it as much legitimacy as some of the other films. But it's definitely one that I don't treasure as much but feel like I need to come back to at some point. And uh, I definitely will after yeah. that recommendation. Yeah, same here.
0: I would definitely t- tell everybody to go back to it. It's, it's a, it, it. I know it's not as loved and it's not as uh, celebrated as so many of his other films, but it, I, it's wonderful.
2: Yeah, i got you know, to say... G- james hancock on on a wrong reel episode can't remember which one it was but he said yeah john Cribbs loves explorers and you know it's just it's great i don't like it but he loves it and i was like i never said that what <laughs> <laughs> james attributing things that i did not say
1: but. yeah you you guys have thrown me with some of your choice i did not expect stevie to be picking explorers and i didn't expect this much love for gremlins too, which is great because it kind of validates my own choice now but my number two number two and number one were always fixed and number two for me is gremlins it's, it's definitely the first joe dante film i ever saw um i think not long after that then i saw piranha but gremlins um you know being a child born in the 70s growing up in the 80s it is one of those films that is just when you when i think of the 80s i think of back to the future you know i think of ghostbusters i, I think of you know the thing blade runner robocop you know films of all different types of genres. But Gremlins is one of those special films for me. It's got that sort of Frank Capra, sort of Kingston Falls kind of vibe to it. It's far scarier than I remember. And maybe I shouldn't be saying this story because it's going to make me out to be a bad parent. But a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were coming back home, driving back home from a weekend away with a family. I think at the time, my children were maybe three and six, like my two sons. My six-year-old, for whatever reason, um, had heard maybe in the schoolyard about this film called Gremlins, and as we were driving home, and, and bear in mind that you know when we got home, the wife and I would just want to unpack the suitcases, get everything away, whilst the kids entertain themselves. So my son said, uh, "Daddy, can I watch uh, Gremlins?" I was like, "Oh yeah, um, yeah, I've got it on DVD. I'll dig it out, and you can watch it." So maybe it was the length of the drive. My you know my wife and I were tired, being a little bit careless. We went home got gremlins out I, I think you know i i was happy enough given the amount of films that my son had seen which were kind of you know he'd seen certainly a few pg-13 you know 12a films i was happy that he could handle gremlins and as it turns out he did he liked the film he didn't find it too scary there were no problems unbelievably what we'd foolishly done is completely forgotten to consider my three-year-old who watched <laughs> the film with him Let's just say getting him to sleep that night was a little bit difficult, and um, I think the last time I checked on him before he did eventually fall asleep, he was just lying down in his bed with the lights on, looking at the ceiling with this look of complete abject terror on his face. <laughs> and then the following day, when I rewatched it with just my uh, six-year-old, I was like, "Yeah, um, we've kind of um, made a bit of a mistake there. That is certainly not a film that a three-year-old should be watching. I think he's over it now. I, I think." Oh, he now? Yeah, he's he, he's okay now. He, he's he's moved on to things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think we've we've advanced him on a, a couple of years in his, his sort of film taste. He, he's
2: able to put letters inside mailboxes now with no, <laughs> yeah, 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 no issue. No,
0: but what do you forget is that, like I so say we we've mentioned this already, but in the UK gremlins was a 15 was certificate a 15, which, you weren't allowed yeah. to see it unless you were 15 years or over
1: and there's there's no equivalent rating in the states. it's like a, a 15 it's like an NC-17 NC-15 NC well, no, isn't it well, no an, an NC-17 is, is the equivalent of R18 I suppose well, a 15 can, is closer yeah. to an R rating but
0: yeah but it, is, it, is this right John with an R rating you're allowed to take children yes yeah, anyone yes. uh, under the age so of 17 yeah, has to be accompanied with, by yeah. an adult. Yeah. So with a with 15,
1: no children no, whatsoever. No, that's right. So you have to be 15 to see a 15 film.
2: That's wild. Of course, Gremlins over here was one of the reasons that PG-13 was created. Yeah, I
1: think it was obviously it was the same year as um, Temple of Doom, which was all, obviously a PG film, and they're one of the two films that's attributed to the creation of the PG-13 rating. I think wasn't the first PG-13 rating film, uh, was it Red Dawn? i don't know good question pretty sure that red dawn was actually i think there were two films which were made at the same time and i think they were both given pg-13 ratings but i think red dawn was released first again you know if i'm wrong guys please uh tweet in and, and correct me but yeah it, it's gremlins and you know you could film the entire episode just talking about why it's such a great film you know just, just the little touches like the the peltzer inventions you know Phoebe Cates' story about finding the bathroom her, buddy. Yeah, the bathroom buddy. Yeah. You know, this just ah, oh, the film is just packed to the girls full of these wonderful little moments, and it is, it's just got that sort of magical feeling to it. It's a Christmas film after all. It is. And yeah, I just love it. It's um, it's a, it solidified itself as my number two favorite Joe Dante film.
0: And that's, I think that you know the fact I think I haven't included the Gremlins films in my top three, that no way reflects on them because yeah. There's so many good stuff in
1: his yeah. you know, uh, filmography. Yeah, absolutely. I love them too. So um, I think, uh, John, we're on to your number one.
2: Uh, my number one Joe Dante movie is Haunted Lighthouse. Oh. What? <laughs> uh, Haunted Lighthouse. I'm just going to tell this little story. Uh, yeah. When IMDb first came about and it was getting popular, uh, I was in college. Uh, Chris Vunderburg and I were like, let's look up Joe Dante. It's like the first thing I ever looked up on IMDb, right? to see what he was doing next what the next movie was going to be and the next thing listed was Haunted Lighthouse and we were like okay, okay that's that's a terrible title but i guess we're excited and it was on there forever this would have been a few years before small soldiers came out it was just sitting there like you know in post production pre production whatever and there was no indication of what it was turns out it is something he apparently made for a theme park in Yorkshire called flamingo land resort it stars christopher lloyd it's half an hour long i've never seen this thing but chris and i still have this little in joke where we talk about joe dante's haunted lighthouse it's just something that's weird and nobody knows about it nobody has seen it it's bizarre
0: just looking on uh, imdb now and there's a, a review one star yuck this yeah <laughs> this I'm, is I'm, a <laughs> terrible film joe dante should be ashamed of himself <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: wow, probably the reason nobody has seen it. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I'm looking at the po- I'm looking at the poster now, and yeah, it looks it, oh, wow. I don't even know how to print the words.
2: Uh, number one is the burbs. Yes, yes, obviously, yes, yes, it's the number one for us. <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would, have bet. Uh, you know, <laughs>
1: I, I would have bet money on that, John. Of course. And again, you know, is, is there anything like, you know finally you want to say on the burbs and why is your favorite of his films?
2: It's just such, you know, um, uh, our friends over at Pearson, the podcast, you know, have this term, the film handshake, you know, where you find a movie where it's just has this communal effect where you know that you found like-minded people, you know, potential friends. Yeah. If you all appreciate the same movie and it just has that effect on people where it's just, you know, something about their personality, if they're a fan of the movie and the burbs is that movie for me. It's a movie that if I hear someone likes the burbs. I know that they can't be evil. I know they can't be the clopex. You know, they have to be my neighbor, my, my art, you know, <laughs> they they have to be good folks. So it just has that effect. And as we just talked about, just has a lasting effect on, on me, on, on, on the kind of film I look at on how a film is made, On how the director really turns the movie into what it is on the auteur theory. A lot of people don't think of Dante as being a particularly artistic, you know, uh, director with authorship over his films, but I couldn't disagree more. I think this is the reason I love Dante so much is that his personality is in it from the very beginning, where they zoom into the earth to the very end where they zoom out of the earth. It's just Mm -hmm. uh, that feels like Dante just kind of wiping his hands, like you know, stepping away from the canvas, as it were. It's just it it solidifies him as a master
1: and I agree John I liked, and, and I think it's you know cards on the table Steve is he your number one Oh, it's my number it's one as well, one yes, as well. Yes. and I think anyone that says that Joe Dante isn't an auteur director my answer to that would be has Joe Dante ever made a film that he didn't want to make has he ever bowed down to studio pressure to make a film that's not doesn't fit within that sort of the parameters of what a Joe Dante film is I'd say that I don't think he has
2: maybe Haunted Lighthouse <laughs> well, yeah yeah <laughs>
1: I don't even think that qualifies as a film because I think IMDb doesn't even show running time for it. No, no. Yeah, I, I don't it's, think it's no. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know for me it is. It's on a short list of films that, and I know you know, obviously it is it's purely subjective. You know the things we like and the things we dislike. But I've never met someone who has watched the Burbs that doesn't at least appreciate it. And people who've watched it a few times. Just eventually fall in love with it.
0: You'd be surprised. You're talking to it and people that you know are not film fans. Or anything yeah. And you mention the boobs. Oh, I love. Oh,
1: the I bo- love the boobs. Yeah. Maybe this is something we should have covered in the main body of discussion about the boobs. But you know, it, it it wasn't a massive financial success, but it certainly wasn't a film that Dante would ever class as a failure. I think it was made for about was it eleven million dollars? Uh, no, sorry, the estimated budget was eighteen million dollars, and its worldwide gross was forty nine million. Which you know, back in nineteen eighty eight, for a film like that, you know. Thinking back, nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine. That film cost eighteen million dollars. I wonder how much of that was the salary. It's not, you know, it's not like it's an effects-heavy film. No, you know, you're right there. Yeah, yeah. you've got know, you've got a question like, where did that budget go? It's not only is it one of my favorite films; it's one of my favorite comedies. I think when we did uh, favorite three comedies in the first yeah. ever episode of Film Eighty Nine, I think The Burbs was my number one choice. Yeah. So not only is it my favorite Joe Dante film; it's my favorite comedy. I don't, I don't think it would ever be in my all-time top 10 favorite films but then you know if i if i'm looking to be inclusive and pick a comedy then yeah i would have to put the Burbs. it 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 is it's the best way i can sum it up is it's my feel-good film if i was sick if i had the flu and just didn't want to watch something i hadn't seen before wanted to put it's comfort food if i wanted to put something on just to make me feel better it'd be the Burbs. and you could put it on
0: any time yeah for any mood
1: yeah absolutely and if it's on tv doesn't matter what i'm doing oh it sucks you in it's like a
2: tractor beam i have to watch it yeah (laughs) couldn't agree more that's an hour and a half gone right there if it's on tv
1: so there you go um our favorite um joe dante film so we did put it out to social media and i don't know if this how this reflects on joe dante but i've got to say this was the poorest response we've had to any request for people's favorite threes now do you think, guys, it's a case of because Joe Dante isn't a prominent director anymore? Us being, what are we, Generation X? Yeah, we're, we're Generation okay. X. Yeah, I think our parents were baby boomers. We're Generation X. I don't think millennials would would have much of a knowledge of who Joe Joe Dante is unless no, they dip no, back into right the there. past, you know, in, into the you know in, into the eighties, you know, when it, when he was most most prominent. But yeah, it um, I, I was quite disappointed with the response that we've got, but the rest of the film eighty nine crew haven't let us down. Neil Gaskin's choices are. Number three, The Burbs. Number two, Inner Space, which mm. is nearly made my uh, top three.
0: Oh, that's um, Joe Dante's favourite film, he said. Yeah. One of the ones that he's made."
1: And number one, Gremlins. Richie Roberts, he's got the three, same three films, uh, but in slightly different order. Number three, Inner Space. Number two, The Burbs. And number one, Gremlins. His honourable mentions are Small Soldiers and Gremlins to the new batch. Uh, Jacob Rivera. Who you can find on Twitter at JRATM23. It was also part of the Film 89 crew. Number three, Matinee. Number two, Inner Space and number one, Gremlins. Steven Simpson at SteveU7. Number three, The Howlin'. Number two, Inner Space. Number one, Gremlins. And uh, I am Jack's Musins. Who you can find on Twitter at I am Jax Musins. Number three, Explorers. Number two, Gremlins. And number one, The Incomparable Inner Space.
0: Well, I'm glad there's another one who put yeah. the explorers in the, the top three.
1: But, you know, generally, every episode we do a favourite three. Uh, it pains me to sort of leave most of them, you know, on the cutting room floor or, or just not to read them up because it gets to the point where, you know, we're, we're going over that sort of comfortable recording time and, and I just have to leave them out. But this time they were just very few um, in, in response to our request. So it just makes me think. we We love Joe Dante. We grew up with him, but is he now in the public consciousness? And I would probably say, no, he isn't. No, he's not. And
0: um, one thing I have mentioned so far is that uh, a couple of years ago, I had a cat and his name was Dante. After Joe Dante? <laughs> because of Joe Dante, wow. yes. Wow. I had nice. to do that. Uh, but you know, you're right. Um, you know, he, uh, he, most of the stuff he's been doing in the last couple of years, I think, is television, isn't it?
1: And again, but that's Michael's trailer yeah. as well. Yeah, it yeah, it does. Um the amount of of positive stuff I saw on Twitter when Arrow Video, and then subsequently more recently Shout Factory re-released the Burbs on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. you know, there were loads of people just coming out of the woodwork declaring their love for the film. Gremlins is always a film that, that seems like eminently popular. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think after Small Soldiers, which um you know unfortunately was bordering on, I think, a bit of a flop, he just you know, he, he hasn't really done anything.
0: Uh, uh, I, I I'd say that the whole was very very good. Yeah, I really I, enjoyed the whole. Yeah, it's not you know the, yeah. the same quality of his um, other stuff, but uh, it was. I think it was a very good, and very
1: entertaining film. Why do, Why do you think John, you know, Joe Dante's career has taken the sort of tra- trajectory it's taken? Um And I don't want to make. I can't help but make comparisons to John Carpenter, someone who back in the seventies and eighties was just on this incredible streak from. Um, assault on precinct 13 all the way up to big trouble in little china which i know wasn't a success theatrically but it it was massive on home video and it's become you know it's now got a huge cult following he he basically redefined the horror genre with 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 halloween and made you know for me what is one of the greatest films of all time in the thing but then obviously in recent decades hasn't done anything of any worth what why do you think these directors end up sort of going down this certain
2: career path it's really hard to say I think with Dante, especially when you read about small soldiers, how he struggled to make it the kind of film he wanted to when the studio wanted it to be more kid friendly and be able to have Burger King glasses and everything like that. You realize that, you know, as an auteur with a very strong voice, you know, he's like anyone. He has to come up against the fact that he makes commercial films. You know, he puts himself in commercial films and once he's not able to get a balance that the studio is happy with, he's obviously going to have trouble getting offers and doing stuff. And if he's not willing to do, you know, a superhero movie or you know, a, sequ- a horror sequel, if he wants to stay true to himself, he's going to turn down a lot of things as well. So I think part of it has to do with that. I think also he was making films that were very specifically aimed at the people who are from matinee, the people who grew up with the B movies and the drive-ins. He felt like he he didn't have anyone to speak to, not realizing perhaps that our generation growing up with these films found a whole new way to appreciate them mm. and that they meant so much to us and that we, of course, were the ones responsible for these new Blu-ray re- releases and the resurgence of uh, some of these films that you know were less loved when they came out. But I don't know what the commercial value of that is. You know, I don't know. Uh, even when people like Carpenter or Dante find the respect that they didn't exactly have, it still has to do with the business. And by that time, they're much older and maybe they just don't have as much drive to get out there and say something I know that's certainly the case with Carpenter who feels like he he, he doesn't need to go out there and say something new because everyone loves his old films so much it's ta- it's tough it's sad that you want them to make more movies and you want them to have some new new films out there but at the same time you can't fault them for the 20 25 years of brilliance that they offered you know and it's that's a pretty good stretch for anybody when you consider so so many filmmakers coming and going so uh, i can 't be too sad about it. I think you know the people who love Dante absolutely love him and will keep these kind of films alive so if he you know if unfortunately he decides he never wants to put forth the effort to make a film again and after looney Tunes, I know he expressed complete fatigue and setting up the whole thing i wouldn 't fault him for it
1: yeah, and you know the you know the guy's he 's pushing what he's he's seventy two he 's like seventy three this year and every interview I see with the guy he 's always he's always got that same amount of passion and love for film and what i don't get from him is a sense of regret i don't think he regrets no. anything about his career and like i say that's why i think he you know he he's he's always made the films he wants to make uh, and for that reason alone he'll always be a director i've just got the absolute utmost respect for
0: and I think these days as well he's he's got his own projects like the trailers from Hell. Yeah. Which is he, know, yeah, he's still which is excellent. And yeah. it's, it's a way for him to carry on
1: celebrating yeah. the film. Maybe films he's he just loves. segued into a different form of entertainment. Yeah. You know, because I think, you know, people are saying that, you know, the word is that we are seeing or about to see the golden age of podcasts and you know things like podcasts and trails from hell and, and you know people segueing away from TV and film into other avenues of entertainment other forms of delivery of entertainment it may well be the future
0: well, and he started uh, a podcast not long ago and uh, the, the movies that made me yeah uh, which is a, an excellent listen yeah yeah so you know he's
1: still there he's still you know got the same passion he's just you know he isn't making films anymore but you know look at the great films he's given us
2: yeah I hope he doesn't have any regret. I hope every time one of us goes up to him and says, "I love your films," you know, I think they're amazing. They're some of my favorite films. I hope it means something to him.
1: you yeah. know yeah. And the, you know, the great thing is he's 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 one of these you know handful of people that are very active on Twitter and very generous and mm. and, and will like and retweet you know things which appeal to him. Uh, and, and the best thing about it, you can say about you know as a no. tribute to somebody like that. the best thing about him, he shares the same birthday as me. Twenty is he? yeah, November twenty eighth.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: So John, yeah, it's it's been um, great having you on. And you know, when Steve and I discussed doing a 30th anniversary sort of celebration of the Burbs and, and Joe Dante, you know, you were the, you were the only person that was going to, you know, we were you we were going to get on, given you you know your absolute love of everything Joe Dante related. So thank you very much for your time. It's great to finally have you on here. Where can people find you if they want to chat with you on social media
2: and and uh, and read your, your articles and listen to your podcasts? Thank you guys so much. This has been so much fun. I'm can be found, of course, at thepinksmoke.com, where we have articles up all the time. Uh, on Twitter, we're at the thepinksmoke, and my personal Twitter handle is at thelastmachine.
1: Fantastic, Steve. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, chat film?
0: Uh, well, primarily on Twitter, um, at welshbluesman, and of course you can read any of my stuff on um, film89.co.uk.
1: Yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can follow us all at Film89UK, both on Twitter and Facebook. Please check out the website. Like I said last episode, again, more writers on board. We've, yeah, we've got Stephen Saunders on board now, um, who's put in a, a great few pieces recently. Please give us a, a like, and uh, more importantly, please leave us a, an iTunes review. It, it means a great deal to us. And the more positive iTunes reviews we have, the way Apple's bizarre sort of um, credit structure works is, you know, it'll it'll mean that there's a, a greater chance of them promoting us. And thank you very much again to everyone who has listened to and shared and recommended um, our last few episodes. You know, the podcast is going from strength to strength and it is flying up, um, you know, the, the Podomatic podcast charts. So honestly, big love to you all out there, and um, we love having daily interactions with you on Twitter and Facebook. And just thank you for, you know, making this thing a success for us. We're absolutely loving it and um, we hope to be able to kick out more great content for you but for now we're gonna bring things to a close so as usual we'll just say stay safe stay happy most importantly god I love this street yeah.